lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Eveling. Well, can I get a little sympathetic nod from you if you still have your Christmas tree up? Because I still have mine up, and for the last three episodes, I've been talking about how I need to get this thing taken care of, and then something comes up. I have four kids. I've got three boys in basketball, a daughter in speech, and we're gone Almost every minute of the weekend, we are running somewhere, and I could not get the kids to all of their different activities if I wasn't in a number of different carpools. And we have to have a family meeting on Friday nights just to script out where everyone is going to be on any given weekend right now. It is just so crazy busy around here. And much to my mortification, that tree is still up. So I'm not even going to try to publicly incentivize myself to get it done because it'll come down when I finally get a moment to get to things like that. In the meantime, I'm producing the podcast and I'm just trying to stay on top of the laundry. So I'm just taking the pressure off myself. So don't even ask, don't even ask. But if you're like me, just know you're not alone. And hopefully we can make it happen in February. Well, I want to begin the show by welcoming new members to our Facebook group. That's the listener community for the show for the Still Growing Podcast. And you can find it by going to Facebook and then searching Still Growing Podcast Group. And the listener community for the show will pop right up. So go ahead and search for that, or you can go to my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. It's the home of the Still Growing Podcast. And right in the menu, you'll see a link, and it'll say Facebook group, and that'll take you right to the listener community. Now, this is a closed group. It's a private group. So if you're wanting to get into the group, you will look at it initially and see that it's private or closed. And all you have to do is click to join, just request to join anyway. And I'll see that you're requesting it. And as long as I can verify that you're a real person, then I will admit you into the group. For the most part, I would say 90% of the requests that I receive to get into the group are completely legitimate. But that's the exact reason why it's a closed or private group so that we can make sure that we maintain the integrity of the group and that people who are in the group are people who have a passion for growing and gardening and learning more about it. So anyway, new guests this week include Susan Hartwig, Gio Pensano, Daniel McAllister, Jennifer Canal, Nancy Tharp, Sonia Bramiage, Barb O'Brien, and Sam Huff. I totally apologize if I've pronounced any of your names wrong. You can totally correct me in the group, and I'm happy to re-announce it next week. But I do want to welcome you so much to the community, the listener community. It's a place where you can share your garden information and ideas and also connect with guests of the show, like last week's guest, Pam Pennick, the author of The Water Saving Garden and Lawn Gone. And Pam was generous enough to give away to a lucky listener, a personally inscribed copy of her brand new book called The Water Saving Garden. And the winner is someone from the Facebook group, and it's Holly Bystron Spiller. 
So congratulations, Holly. I'll have you private message me with your email contact information, and I'll forward that on to Pam, and then you can share with her the inscription that you'd like for the cover of of your book. Now, if you would like to win something from the Still Growing Podcast, from one of our guests of the show or from a sponsor, all you have to do is join the community, join that Facebook group, because that's the only place I go to pick winners for giveaways. So I'd love to meet you in the Still Growing Podcast group. It's also where I can stay in touch with you in between episodes. So what I do is during the week as I'm reading horticulture articles or different news articles, I will curate those and share those with the group. And the group is a place where we can continue the conversation about our love for gardening and horticulture and also interact with guests of the show. So what I'm doing this week is I'm going to share my top 10 list of things that I shared in the group this past week to hopefully entice you to join the group. But I've decided I'm going to try to categorize these a little bit so that I can get into a more of a rhythm about curating content for you guys. So these were the categories that I came up with. I'm going to share them with you now, and then I'll share the posts that made it into the group this week. And then if you have an idea for a category, something you'd like me to curate for you or look up, please let me know. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say and things that you're looking to find out more about. So the first category is always a guest update. This is something that a former guest of the show might have shared on their Facebook page or in their blog. It can be original material or something they found interesting. So I'll use the number one spot for that. Number two will have to do with sustainability. So I will post something that is in this very broad category. There's a lot that falls under it. Number three is continuing ed. This is something that I think will benefit you as you try to learn and grow as a gardener. So things that fall under that category will be labeled continuing ed. Category four, the number four spot will be how-tos and DIYs. I'm a how-to girl. I love to try to create things more economically on my own, and I just enjoy doing something like that, getting creative in the garden. Number five will be plant spotlights. Number six will be in the news. So these will be things that I've curated in the past week that have come up in the news, new interesting facts or information about things in horticulture. In the seventh spot are articles that I stumble across, and I'm calling it the dream guest category. So these are articles that inspire me to reach out to individuals in the article or individuals in that topic area, and I'll be pursuing them for future shows. And by the way, if you have someone in mind as a guest for a future show, I'd love to hear your input on that. In the eighth spot, I'll be doing mostly science features in horticulture. So things that are based in science. And the number nine spot, one of my favorite things, is shopping. So these will be items that I think are cool and interesting that you can go out and purchase that have to do with gardening. And in the uh, 10th spot will be inspiration. So these would be things that send you on your way for the week and hopefully inspire you in the world of gardening. And then finally, in the very last place, I'll just share some of the recipes that made it into the group this week because I love recipes 
recipes, and I can't help but share them with the group. So, all right, so let's get through today's list. In the number one spot is a post that was shared by former guest Eric Sandrud of Mighty Axe Hops. This was an episode that I did last fall with Eric. He is the owner and operator of Mighty Axe Hops, along with his partner, Ben Boo. And that episode was number 532. And if you have an interest in growing hops or just a curiosity around it, that's the episode you're going to want to go to. Now, in this number one spot, Eric had shared, this is an opinion piece that appeared in the Growler, Growler Magazine. And it's all about female hops growers and how they are finding their place in the very male-dominated world of hops growing and brewing. In the number two spot for sustainability is an article from Balcony Garden Web, and it's seven secrets to have a continuously productive vegetable garden. Now, their tips include successive planting, planting seedlings on time, growing continual producers, and incorporating the use of a cold frame or greenhouse, just to name a few. It's a nice, comprehensive article. In the number three spot for Continuing Ed this week is a wonderful article about how to grow an olive tree in a container. And it's pretty inspiring because if you're new to the world of keeping trees in containers, the olive tree is a great one to start with because it's so hardy and it can adapt to life in containers. So this article is very helpful and I think I'm going to give it a try as well. In the number four spot is a project I hope to do this spring and it's How to Create a Chandelier Planter Tutorial. It was featured in gardeningdreams.org and they repurpose a chandelier that they probably bought at a thrift store or on Craigslist and then they attach terracotta pots to the chandelier. It is adorable. It's very, very cute. And that will make it in the Facebook group this week as well. In the number five spot for the plant spotlight are these wonderful winter garden plants that dazzle even when it snows. This is a post from houselogic.com. I won't spoil the surprise, but it's really great structural plants for the winter garden. There were two things I wanted to share with you from the number six spot in the news. The first one is something my mom found for me in the Star Tribune, and it has to do with the Arbor Day Foundation. If you join the Arbor Day Foundation by January 31st, you can have 10 flowering trees growing in your yard by the end of May because new members receive two crab apples, three American red buds, two Washington hawthorns, and three white flowering dogwoods. The trees will produce pink, yellow, and white blossoms and are ideal for large and small spaces and will provide food and habitat for songbirds in addition to being absolutely gorgeous on your property. So these are little trees. They're 6 to 12 inch tall trees and they will be shipped at the right time for planting between February 1st and May 31st when they will have instructions. So the trees are guaranteed to grow or they will be replaced free of charge. And members also receive a subscription to the foundation's bi-monthly publication Arbor Day and the Tree Book, which explains planting and care. So to become a foundation member, and I know I'm going to be doing this right after I'm done recording this show, send $10 to 
10 free flowering trees, Arbor Day Foundation, 100 Arbor Avenue, Nebraska City, Nebraska, 68410 by January 31st, or you can join online at arborday.org backslash January. So I hope you give that a go. What a great, wonderful offer from the Arbor Day Foundation for 10 flowering trees. The other thing that caught my attention in the news this week is this article that had shared the Northwest's earliest garden that was discovered in British Columbia. This was posted in the Smithsonian Magazine. And it talked about this 3,800-year-old stone platform that was used to cultivate wild water potatoes, which was a staple crop for North American people. Apparently, road building crews near Pitt Meadows, about 20 miles from Vancouver, came across this 450-square-foot platform that was made of flat stones and that they were packed tightly together. And archaeologists were called in to assess it, and, and they determined that it was a wetland potato garden. And in the past, this area had been covered with shallow water and silt. And the stone platform had been constructed to prevent the tubers from rooting too deep, making it easier to pull them out of the muck. So in the Pacific Northwest, these water potatoes, otherwise known as arrowroot or arrowleaf or arrowhead, were a staple crop. And they grew on riverbanks and in wetlands. And then the native communities would dig them up and roast them whole or dry them. And then they would pound them into meal for storage. So it's a fascinating article. It was actually posted in late December. And I didn't get to it until this week. But it is a very interesting article, especially how they use to harvest these water potatoes. Meriwether Lewis, during his expedition across the West, noted that these chestnut-like water potatoes were an important trading commodity, and he stopped to observe women collecting the tubers in 1806, and here's what he wrote. By getting into the water, sometimes to their necks, holding a small canoe with their hands, and with their feet, they loosened the water potato, or the bulb of the root, from the bottom of the fibers. And it immediately rose to the top of the water, and then they collected them and threw them into the canoe. Isn't that fascinating? So that was in the news this week. The number seven spot, the dream guest spot, has to do with urban farming. And it's this great article about Square Roots Farm in Brooklyn. And it shows them harvesting greens all through the night from their urban farm in Brooklyn, New York. And in this article, they show this incredible time-lapse video that shows how hard they have to work in these urban farms today and how manual the harvesting process is right now. I found this piece to be completely mesmerizing, and I'm very interested in talking to a group of urban farmers in a roundtable format for an upcoming episode. Well, in the number eight spot, the science spot for this week is this really cool article 
that's called Life is a Highway, Watch Bacteria Riding the Fungal Expressway, and it is a video. This was featured by Jennifer Fraser on January 26th, and she shares this movie that shows the streaming of fungal cell contents called cytoplasmic streaming that occurs as part of normal fungal business. And there is an article that she shared in a previous post that had led up to this and kind of set the stage, and it's called Soil Fungi serve as bacterial highways and dating services. So it's fascinating work, and Jennifer did a great job of reporting on it. In the number nine spot, the shopping spot, are 10 unique gifts that will delight any gardener. This is from a website called thepumpkingrows.com. It's a WordPress website. I love it. And they share everything from book ideas to sprout pencils. These are pencils that can be used like any other pencil, but when they become too short to write, you plant them and grow herbs. The pencil has seeds that are stored in the end that are waiting to be planted. So that's a super cool gift. And in the inspiration spot, the 10 spot this week, is this fantastic post I can't get out of my mind. And it's all about this Airbnb-created secret indoor garden in the middle of London that you can actually go and stay at right this very moment. So this was shared on the 25th of January. There were a couple of news outlets that were sharing this post, and they worked in conjunction with Color Authority Pantone, and they've declared lime green the color of 2017. So they used that color and then created this fantastic green garden home that you can actually stay in in London. So this was a warehouse space in Clerkenwell, and they call it the outside in-house, and it will accommodate a few lucky Airbnb guests who managed to fight off hundreds, probably thousands of others who are trying to book a stay there right now, and that's by night. By day, this is the cool part, it's going to host a range of botanical-inspired workshops, everything from how to make terrariums to botanical gin tasting and Tai Chi. And Annie Back, who is part of Airbnb's communications team, said that the inspiration to create a plant-filled home came from the increasing number of people who are offering green experiences through the service. So apparently there are a number of people on Airbnb who are offering spaces with plants to entice people to come and stay. Now, this space is super cool. It's been playfully thought out. You walk through this giant door that's been painted that Pantone greenery, of course, that wonderful lime green color. And normally when you hear the words lime green, it's not something that I'm drawn to, but you have to see their version of it because it's very warm. It's very inviting. I love the color. And I think I might have to get it and then just experiment with it this year outside in the garden and then maybe on a wall inside the house. Anyway, once you're inside this building, you get to see this kind of faux greenhouse space. It's an open plan living and workshop area where they have hydroponics units that are brimming with herbs and tons of plants. There's an ivy-draped spiral staircase that takes you down to a lawn that's bordered with foxgloves and conifers. There's this luxurious bathroom where they drew inspiration from this houseplant-laden bathroom that was on Instagram. It's just stunning. Unfortunately, it's not open very long. It's a very, very brief open period to book a room there or to stay there or go to the workshops, but it's wonderful. It was very well done. It reminds me a little bit of Flower House Detroit. 
Then for recipes this week, there was a really excellent post on Smitten Kitchen that talks all about how to make cookies the easy way. And I love to read a good article about how to make cookies. And this one in particular, I thought that the cookie gods were smiling down when this article was written because there are so many fabulous tips in this article. If you are a cookie baker, you will love this particular article, this post. And then, of course, there was a really fun article about 18 Super Bowl sandwiches to feed a crowd that I could not resist. I love sandwich recipes because we're always on the go on the weekend. And if there's something I can put together really quickly, grab, run, get in the car, that's perfect for our family. Well, today's show is very, very special because I have my friend Joel Karsten on the show. He's the pioneer of Straw Bale Gardens. You know, a few years ago, Joel was on the program in episodes 515, 516, and 517, a three-part series on how to grow a straw bale garden. Episode one was more about Joel's background, how he came to come up with the idea and pioneer straw bale gardens. And then episode 516 is the one where Joel gets in depth into how to grow a straw bale garden. And then in 517, we wrap up our chat by talking about growing in straw bale gardens in warmer climates, direct sowing, growing vegetables in straw bale gardens, and then the inspiration that other gardeners have discovered after trying his method. And I know from Joel that people become complete converts. They just go crazy for it because they can't believe how easy it is, that it's weed-free and can be done almost anywhere, in small spaces, parking lots, on top of very poor soil conditions, whatever hurdle you might be facing. This episode is all about Joel's visit to Cambodia. He went there last spring to provide training on straw bale gardening to improve food security in some of Cambodia's remotest regions. Now, Joel went to Cambodia at the invitation of the Korea Trade Investment Promotion Agency, or COTRA, and the Rural Development NGO, Akenden Cambodia. Now, these two groups are huge proponents of straw bale gardening, and they believe that the method can provide a secondary food source to traditional food sources at risk to environmental fluctuations like the current devastating drought in Cambodia and the annual floods. And Joel noted in this really great article called Spinning Straw into Food Security that straw bale gardening can solve a lot of problems in areas where the soil is poor, where it's too wet to grow vegetables, or too dry to grow rice. And Joel noted at the end of the article that farmers in Cambodia every year just burn their rice straw bales. Well, now they can use it to grow. I thought Joel's trip was one of the most meaningful and significant things that happened in horticulture last year. And honestly, I got a little choked up when I saw his pictures of the work he did during his 10 days in Cambodia. I'm so pleased that he agreed to speak with me in depth about it, and I hope you find it as inspiring as I did. Hey, Joel, it's Jennifer. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Well, I am so incredibly excited to get the chance to talk to you in depth about your trip to Cambodia last year. I bet you never imagined that straw bale gardening 
would one day bring you all around the world, almost to the exact opposite spot on the globe from Minnesota to Cambodia. That's what caught my attention. You'd shared it in your Facebook group a couple of times. And then when you returned, you had these amazing pictures, very inspiring. I actually got a little choked up looking at them to think of coming from that small town in southwestern Minnesota and then devising this method that just catches on, especially worldwide. I mean, it's everywhere now, Europe and South Africa and Australia and Cambodia, because you're helping to feed people, especially in Cambodia. That's what caught my attention, and I thought it was pretty extraordinary, very, very special. And I have to ask, I wanted to start out by just getting your thoughts around self reliance and food security, because those two things are big challenges for Cambodia, aren't they? Um, it is very much. a. I, I can't say that I knew a lot about Cambodia in advance of my trip. I really didn't. I probably should have known more. Essentially, what I knew about Cambodia is what I saw in, in movies over the years. People have probably seen the same movies like The Killing Fields years ago about the struggles that they went through um, with their the dictatorship that ran their country and, and the bad things that happened to the people that live there. That's really the only thing I knew a lot about. I didn't know modern Cambodian kind of the evolution. Um, so I learned a lot, you know, after my invitation, I studied up a little bit. And then um, when I got over there, I was really impressed with, like you say, the independence of the people and the um, self-reliance of the Cambodian people, particularly these, these farmers and these people who were, who want to learn new techniques and things. It was it was really amazing. I was very impressed by the people themselves. Ugh, I'm sure you were. Well, before we explore this extraordinary journey that you went on, let's have you share a little bit about how you pioneered this method of growing and then what's involved. And I just want to take a second to and remind listeners that you and I had spoken about three years ago after your book had come out. It was a New York Times bestseller. And people were so curious about straw bale gardening. So we did this long interview, and it's in episodes, it's broken into three parts, and it's in episodes 515, 516, and 517. 515 was all about your background and how you came to pioneer this method. And then 516 is the nitty-gritty. It's the how-to of straw bale gardening. You really walk people through the steps. And then finally, 517, episode 517, we talk about a number of different things, growing in warmer climates, direct sowing into the bales, growing vegetables, and then the inspiration that you had found from people all over the world that were starting to straw bale garden. So I just want to remind folks that those episodes are still available to listen to. They're in the podcast archive. So whatever podcast app you're listening to right now, if you just scroll back, you'll see those earlier episodes and you'll be able to listen to them whenever you want. Now, for today's show, why don't we have you just quickly give an overview of how you came up with this method and then what's involved because there is more to it than just tossing some seeds on a straw bale or sprinkling some dirt on top of the bale and growing in that. Yeah, yeah, a little more. You know, not a lot. This isn't, I tell people all the time, this isn't rocket science. If you think about the bale itself as being a container, the outside of the bale forms the the actual vessel as it 
decomposes more slowly. The inside of the bale decomposes very rapidly. And we're going to encourage that decomposition, the growth of bacteria and fungi inside that bale that turns the straw into soil. You know, that's the biggest misnomer is people think you're growing in straw and you're really not. You're growing in recently decomposed straw, which has become soil. Biologically, it's become soil inside of that bale. Um, I started doing this about 24 years ago this spring, I believe it is. And um, I started doing it, you know, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> I bought a house and, the, and the, the house that I bought only had a half an inch or an inch of topsoil. I wanted to have a garden. Um, you know, I had a degree in horticulture and a background growing up on a farm. Um, but what I didn't have when I just graduated college 24 years ago and just bought my first house, I didn't have money to build a raised bed, which is what a normal person would do. <laughs> and that's why I always tell, you know, people is if I had had $200 at the time when I needed to build a raised bed, you would have never heard of me <laughs> because straw bale gardening <laughs> would have never come about. But because I didn't have money, I, I knew that, you know, when we left bales of straw laid by the barn, Back on the farm, great big weeds would grow out of them, so I knew there was nutrients and that would hold moisture. So I started doing some experimenting using a bale, of, you know, a series of bales of straw, and I would apply a little nitrogen fertilizer in order to get the decomposition process started. You know, not really understanding a lot of detail about what was happening, but knowing that I needed to begin the growth of of these bacteria inside the bale to get it to decompose. So I tried a bunch of different methods, and over the years, have really just sort of perfected this method so that if you follow my step-by-step -step process um, of how to get the bales ready to plant and then follow my layouts for how you plant the bales, the sides, the top, the ends, um, and then how to build trellis systems above the bales to support your, your vining plants, et cetera. And, you know, there's a bunch of other little tips and tricks and techniques that I, that I teach people in, in a couple of books that I've written. Um, it's a no-fail situation. You know, people do vegetable gardening, and there's a steep learning curve for most people. When you're a straw bale gardener, if you can just follow the basic steps to get started and get the plants in bales, you will have success. You know, I always tell people 100% of what you plant is not going to probably make it. But, you know, if you can get 75 or 80% of what you plant to do well, to do better than you expected, you should consider that to be an ex a success, a big success. Uh, so we have lots of people here in the United States. We have lots of people who have tried have never gardened in their life. They try straw bale gardening and they get hooked on it. You know, they start with a couple bales and now they got a great big garden and they grow all their vegetables for their family, um, in their straw bale garden. Uh, when you're all done with the straw bale garden, you have all this beautiful compost left over. So you can start tilling that into your traditional soil and really improve your soil so that someday, you could go back to gardening in those soils and you got this beautiful organic material worked in, um, in the soil that maybe previously was much more difficult to garden in. Uh, now you've improved it significantly by adding all this organic material. So there's all kinds of advantages, you know, it makes the whole process easier. Number one reason people do straw bale gardening is because there's no weeds. That's mm. the big one. You don't have to pull weeds and it doesn't matter again, what your soil is. So you say you don't even have soil. You can do this in a parking lot if you wanted to. Uh, it really doesn't matter what's underneath. So that's an important part of understanding what straw bale gardening is and, and how it works. Um, on a small scale, as a backyard gardener, it works great. We have also have people who do this on a large scale, you know, do thousands of bales in order to speed up um, bringing plants to market. Because the bales are warm, when you plant, put plants in those warm bales, they grow faster. You're going to get faster to maturity 
things like tomatoes and, and peppers and, and cucumbers and even gladiolus. People mm-hmm. that sell products like that at a farmer's market, they want to be the first one at the market that has those products available. And Strabo Gardening allows them to do that. So we have people in the States here that do it on a on a mass production scale as well that are I would consider to be farmers per se. But the story in Cambodia is a little different than what we're doing here in the United States. Yes. And and one thing also I wanted you to just cover really quickly is the difference between a straw bale and a hay bale, because okay. people who are brand new to straw bale gardening can sometimes use those yep. terms interchangeably, but they should not do that, and they need to be aware. Yeah, you know, you know, it's become, yeah, it's become a thing. We, I've, you know, I own the trademark to the term straw bale gardens, and so people assume, you know, that the only thing you can use is is straw, oat straw, or wheat straw, or, or rice straw, or barley straw. The reality is, is hay is food for livestock. Straw is bedding material for livestock. So straw comes usually from the small grains, the cereal grains. Once the harvest has been completed, we take the wheat seeds off and make wheaties, and we bale up the straw. And that's what the animals sleep on because it's highly, it has a great capacity to absorb moisture and hold that moisture, which is what we like when it's bedding material for, for livestock. Hay is what they eat. So it's baled grasses, it's baled alfalfa. You know, this could be a variety of different kinds of grasses depending on where you are in the country. But one of the things that we've discovered with straw bale gardening over the years, and this wasn't necessarily all me that, that discovered this. This is people who used my method but started using other materials, started using hay or started using um, other material that they baled up. In, in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, this was sugarcane stalks that they bailed up wow. and created a, a, using the straw bale garden technique in other material. So I don't want to limit anybody and tell them you can't use um, hay. You could use hay. You know, there might be some advantages to using straw over using hay, but there are a few things in a hay bale that actually are advantageous. It has a little more protein, which decomposes into nitrogen, and therefore you use a little less, Need your plants require a little less fertilization in a bale of hay than they do in a bale of straw. But the bale of hay doesn't hold on to moisture quite as well as the bale of straw. So there's some trade-offs there. Um, but you can use a bale of hay. You can use a bale of uh, half grass clippings and half leaves. Well, how do you get that bale? Well, you've got to make that bale yourself. <laughs> you, don't know, you can't go to Fleet Farm and buy that bale. But in my book, I talk about how to make bales yourself. Um, and this trip to Cambodia is a, is a really interesting one because in Cambodia, they, most people there have never seen or heard of a baling machine. They don't even can't even conceive of a machine that would bale their straw into these type of bales. So all of the bales that we use there are handmade bales. All I had to do was show them how to make the baler, and they made a baler, and they make all their bales that they make are handmade. Well, that's cool. You and I have talked before, and you've told me that you think that straw bale gardening is even more popular in other parts of the world than it is in the United States. What's driving that? Is it space, culture? What do you think it is? Well, I'll tell you one of the main reasons is a space issue. You know, anybody who's ever traveled in Asia or in Europe, it just seems like you take the United States, a city or a suburb of the United States, and you squish it together mm-hmm. really tight, and that's what you have when you go to Europe. So everybody lives in much less space. They have much less outdoor space. Um, and they they just tend to be more 
excited about growing something themselves, especially it seems like in the Netherlands and, and in France and in Spain, the people just have a more sort of fascination with agriculture and are interested in growing some of their own food. You know, maybe it's not a lot. In France, you'll see a little tiny terrace someone has off of their apartment building, and that terrace has five pots out there. There's barely room to walk on the terrace, but they got five pots, and in those five pots, they have, you know, a tomato plant and a couple of herbs and, you know, a a pepper plant or something. You know, they just grow what they can because it's fresh. They can step out the door, and they can pick some basil right off of that plant and, and use it, you know, in their cooking, in their meal prep. Um, it part, so part of it is cultural. I'll tell you what another reason is. If you think about this logically, there are places in Europe, in France in particular, that have been, since Roman times, have been producing wheat or producing, you know, agricultural production in that farm field or in that person's backyard for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And we think we've got it bad. You know, we've only used most of our soil here for, you know, 100, maybe 200 in the oldest parts of the United States, three or 400 years. You know, when the pilgrims came here, that's as far back as we go. And we've ruined a lot of our backyard soils. And, and there's a lot of contamination in urban environments in backyard soils from smokestacks and from, you know, lead deposits and mercury and other things that have been in the air over the years. They settle in the backyard. And now you, that soil can't be used to grow a vegetable garden. Um, and the same problem happens in Europe as happens here, but they've got a lot longer period of time that their contamination could have taken place. So there's a lot of areas where the soil is just not conducive at all to having a garden and all of their gardening is done above ground in containers or in raised bed gardens. And they just love this concept of being able to do a lot larger gardens because the cost is so much lower to do it in a straw bale than to have to build raised beds, fill those raised beds with a media, et cetera. So part of it is just necessity and, and logic that it makes sense that it would fit their method of gardening better because they're trying to avoid in many cases using their virgin soils, their original soils. Um, and, and they like to have an alternative, which for them is like for many of us is the straw bale. That's exactly right. Well, one of the things that always makes me smile about what you're doing with straw bale gardening is that you're reminding folks about how to work with Mother Nature. And just like any successful relationship, the answer is always yes, dear. So I I love to listen to you in interviews because you almost always bring up the example of what happens inside of a lawnmower, inside the bag, full of grass clippings after about a week. Because if you stick your hand inside that bag, it's starting to heat up. And you understand those processes. And straw bale gardening really works with Mother Nature. And it really helps for people to understand a little bit about how things like decomposition, bacteria, and moisture work, the yes, dear part of the equation. Right. Absolutely. You know, if you, if you think about the most successful gardeners you know, more than even if they've never heard of straw bale gardening, the number one thing they all do is they compost. And they understand the importance of compost and what compost provides to a garden. And really what we're doing in that straw bale is we're composting the inside of it. If you could look at the world through a microscope, instead of through our own eyes, the, the world would look very different. If you had a 400 power microscope and you could look inside this bale 
as these bacteria start to colonize the bale. An amazing thing happens. You get these bacteria that are growing very rapidly. Once you give them a food supply, which is going to be this nitrogen, you know, it could be organic blood meal or feather meal, or it could be lawn fertilizer if you're not an organic gardener, and you, and you give them water, that's the only two things they need to begin their growth production. So in a little warm, warmer air temperatures, you know, something above 45 or 50 degrees, these bacteria start to grow very rapidly. You can actually see them grow under the microscope. And when they get to a certain length, kind of like a, they look like a long snake sort of or a, a worm, when they get to a certain length, they pinch in half in the middle. Then they vibrate a little bit. And that vibration, right before they break apart and then become two bacteria, and each of those two halves begin to grow. Fifteen minutes later, they divide in half again. Fifteen minutes later, each of those divides in half again. Every time they're dividing in half, they're pinching in the middle and they're vibrating. They're shaking a little bit. That little vibration causes friction. That friction causes heat, dissipates the energy as heat. Imagine if you start with one bacteria and you divide it in half, and then you divide each of those halves in half, and each of those halves in half, and you do that every 15 minutes. In 24 hours, you go from one bacteria to hundreds of trillions of bacteria. I didn't even know how to pronounce the number that it gets to. But if you do it on your calculator, it's 96 replications. So I take 2 times 2 times 2, 96 times. You'll come up with a really, really big number. And each of those is giving off a little bit of heat as it's making its replication. And that heat is what causes your compost pile to heat up. This is what causes your bale. You stick your hand in the middle of that bale and it's 150 degrees in there. It feels hot. What's causing that? These little bacteria dividing. You reach into that lawn bagger, like I told you about, and you forgot your grass clippings in there last week. You reach in to get that handful of grass clippings out of there and it's warm. Yep. And it's stinky and smelly and black and slimy. That is bacteria at work. It's harmless bacteria to us. It's usually bacillus, which is just decomposer, pretty harmless bacteria. It's not disease-causing bacteria that's going to hurt you as a human being. It's, it's just decomposing. You know, it's doing its job that Mother Nature gave it, which is to decompose organic material and turn everything into soil. If you think about anything that's ever been alive on planet Earth, everything, including us, eventually decomposes back into soil. We become soil once again. Every flower, every tree, anything you've ever seen that's alive, every bug gets eventually decomposed by bacteria in the final step and turned back into soil. And what is soil? Soil is just a substrate that contains molecules of, of nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, all of these elemental materials that can then be molecules that can be reabsorbed through the roots of another plant and those same molecules used to create cells which form a new plant so what one for 100 years with a pine tree falls over in the forest decomposes bacteria break it down back into molecules and all of a sudden up comes a, a flower or a you know you gather that soil and you use it to grow a tomato the tomato decomposes and next year it becomes a pepper plant mm -hmm. using the same molecules it's not you can't you can't destroy matter all you do is change its shape you bring it back to molecular form and you use those same molecules to create something else. It's an amazing thing that happens. And it's a terrific example and a way for people to understand that Mother Nature has been doing this for literally billions of years, using the same molecules to rebuild living things over and over again. And, and how important microbes or bacteria, these tiny little things that you can't even see with the naked eye, are doing the vast majority of the work of enabling this to happen, in or, enabling these 
these same molecules to be reused over and over. I find it fascinating, the biology behind what makes straw bale gardening work so well. And I, I get that question a lot. Well, why do the bales get hot? I don't understand that. And then I go through and I explain this biology. And for some people, they're just fascinated by it. For other ones, they probably don't really care. They, they're just interested in why it works and how it works. They just know it's something natural that causes it. They don't really care. But for other people, this is maybe just a, a foot in the doorway of something that really is, is an understanding that, that they discover about, um, about biology and about just life itself and how it works. Well, I love it. And I think I I, mean, I could geek out on it with you for a very long time as well, because I think it is fascinating. But I also think it's to your credit that you've done your homework on this and that you can talk to people about it, because that helps the buy-in that this is a legitimate way to grow. And I know that there are a few, not very many, but a few skeptics out there that might say with this type of medium, is that really gardening or is it something else? Yeah. And I think understanding the whole aspect of what's making this work, getting a better connection with how things actually do grow in our gardens, they can extrapolate that into their raised bed. Even if they're not straw bale gardening, they can take some of those basic concepts that you're teaching them and apply it to whatever medium they are growing in, whether it's traditional flat earth gardening or raised bed gardening or container gardening or straw bale gardening because it all works on those same basic principles. Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you know, for a long time I was of the, you know, I sort of had the attitude that I was going to convince the whole world to do straw bale gardening because I was such a fan of it. But after a while you get to the point where, you know, I've stopped. I want to teach the people who want to learn. You know, if someone is, is, doesn't believe it, doesn't think it works, or is not interested, that's okay. You know, I, I don't have to convince everybody in the world to do this. Eventually, you're going to have a next-door neighbor who's going to do this and is going to demonstrate for you how it works and how simple it is and, you know, et cetera, and all the advantages to it. And I'm not going to have to teach you. You know, you're going to be taught by somebody how this works. But usually what happens is if somebody sits down and really learns what we're doing here, even if they don't do it themselves, they still become a fan of it. They, they, they start to understand why we do this and how it works and what all the advantages are. And, you know, they may suggest to other people, hey, I don't do this, but I've heard this is a great way to do it. And I've heard a lecture about it, and I understand the basics of why it works. You know, this might be a great thing for you to try as a new gardener or, or on, the, on the complete other end is the gardener who's maybe facing retirement. You know, they can no longer get down on the ground and do the hard work of a traditional garden. This provides them a great opportunity, you know, to be able to do it. I just, I just did the Oklahoma City Gar- Home and Garden Show, and I got a letter when I got back from this guy. He's 81 years old. And he said um, in his letter, you know, he was buying a copy of my book, and he said, you know, I tried this a little bit last fall, and I was really amazed with four bales. But he said, I want to expand my garden, so I thought I better get a copy of your book, so I got all the information. Um, and he's 81 years old. You know, I get letters from people in their 80s. I even got a letter from someone in their 90s who's doing straw bale gardening and, you know, could never do a traditional garden, but this allows them to be able to do it. You know, you don't have all the turning, you know, the, the heavy work lifting soil, et cetera, and having to rototill and everything else involved in a traditional garden. So, you know, even if they're not fans of straw bale gardening, I think it's important to understand how it works. Absolutely. And, and, 
Yeah, certainly that clears up a lot of things, maybe not just about trouble learning, but maybe just about biology in general and, mm-hmm. and how gardens grow and how plants grow. Mm-hmm. Well, I like what you said about uh, people you know, kind of craving or needing to understand that information, however that comes to pass. I always tell my kids when they, you know, leave the house without their coat on or they do something that, you know, they're basically not doing what I told them to do. I always say, well, I can teach you or God can teach you. Either way, you'll learn. You know, if you get cold enough, you'll probably figure out you need to wear a coat. And if you're in a very difficult growing situation and you try all these different things and they're not working, why not try strawberry garden? gardening, you might become completely hooked. Yeah, absolutely. You know, right away, I was thinking of schoolyard gardens, because Mm -hmm. how many times are they faced with space issues, or they don't want to take away playground, or maybe they're truly surrounded in a concrete jungle, straw bale gardens would be a great option for schoolyard gardens, for sure. Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of them already doing it, Jennifer. So you're exactly your your thought process is right on line with a lot of people thinking. Hmm. Wow. Well, when I researched your trip, and I have to say, you know, you and I are from the same corner of Southwest Minnesota, and I I got a little choked up, Joel, when I saw that you went to Cambodia for this particular opportunity because it's mind-blowing to me that you can be from this little small town and that gardening with Grandma Josephine and observing how (laughs) things were growing in straw bales on your farm, then moving to the Twin Cities, not having any money, and then devising this entire method of how to grow. And here you are, 2016, and you find yourself literally on the opposite end of the world, opposite of Minnesota, there you are in hot, hot Cambodia, and you're teaching people how to grow with this method that you devise. So to me, it just was, it, it was just really something else. So I, I knew I had to talk to you about this trip. And when I researched it, there, it seems that there were two groups that had played a role in this opportunity for you, inviting you to Cambodia. The first was the Korea Trade Investment Promotion Agency and the Rural Development NGO, Akenden, Cambodia. So how did all this come to pass? How did they reach out to you? How did they even find you? Well, the internet, of course, like everybody finds everybody <laughs> these days, right? Um, I originally was contacted by a gentleman named Chiho Lee, who is uh, one of the key people with Kotra, the Korean Trade Investment Promotion Agency. And that Korea's, you have to understand the relationship between Korea and Cambodia. Korea is sort of like um, the big sister for Cambodia. They're you know, like we are maybe with Mexico and we are with, you know, other countries that are closer to us, you know, we tend to send aid in and we give a lot of, you know, personal help to to other countries that, that need it. Um, Korea has taken on Cambodia as their, um, sort of, Korea is providing mentorship, I guess you could say to Cambodia. Okay. Now, one of the things I think that's important for people to understand, and I mentioned this a little earlier, is some of the struggles that Cambodia has gone through. Back in the 70s, early late 60s, early 70s, when Pol Pot was the dictator there, anybody who essentially could read and write, unfortunately, was executed. 
during that regime. So you have people now that are slightly older than me, you know, anybody in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, most of those people as children were unable to read and write and never learned to read and write as adults. So you have a huge percentage of the population, um, particularly of the farm population. And remember, over 70% of their country's population are still rural, agricultural. That's how they exist, is farming, essentially. Um, And they can't read and write. So this is important to understand because it's much more difficult to teach someone if you have to teach them orally and you have to teach them by example and they can't take notes and you can't give them a reminder and you can't leave behind a book that they can read. It just doesn't work that way. So, you know, the Koreans understand this and they said, you know, this is going to take a lot of work and you got to come here and we have to show these people and then we got to go out and set up a garden and you got to physically show them how much fertilizer to use and, you know, show them how to water the bales and, you know, and then once you demonstrate, they'll take this information and they'll teach it to other farmers. And then those farmers will teach it to other farmers. And they said, that's how they learn new technologies and new things. So that was our ultimate objective. Now, the other thing that's important for people to understand about Cambodia is their climate and how it works. These are fiercely independent people who are skilled when it comes in agriculture, when it comes to growing rice. This is what they're experts at. And for six months a year, they plant their crop, they grow their crop, they harvest their crop, and they're great exporters of rice. They produce more than their country needs of rice. Um, they're not great at a whole lot of other agricultural ventures from, from what I observed. You know, they're not great um, animal production people. They don't understand animal nutrition. And, you know, essentially the way they raise cows there is, in the morning, they open the gate, and the cows wander around the neighborhood um, and eat whatever they can find. And then at night, when it gets dark, the cows come back to the yard, and they close the gate. And that's how they raise cows. So they don't actually feed them anything. The cows just find something to eat on their own. So they grow any little bits of grass and, and weeds or whatever they can find. And that's, wow. how, they, that's how the cows grow. And you got to be careful when you're driving because you'll hit the neighbor's wandering cows out on the highway. Mm. Um, and it's not the cow owner's fault. It's the driver's fault. That was was absolutely the opposite. The reverse of what you would think is the person who left their cows out, it would be their fault. That's what it would be in the United States. Certainly it would be liability issue. Over there, it's the other way around. If you hit someone's cow, it's your fault. So you have to pay for the cow. You got to be careful when you drive. Anyway, they don't understand a lot about that. And they don't really grow any other crops. Now they have a climate where during their growing season, they probably could grow other crops. But for them, they know and understand how to produce rice, and rice is what they have a market to sell, and they want to sell part of their crop and keep part of it, so they keep enough for their family to eat, and then they sell the rest to get money so that they can pay their cell phone bill and and other things like, you know, like everybody else wants to do in the world, um, and pay for their satellite TV subscription if they happen to have that or whatever. Um, Now, the other six months of the year, so six months they're producing rice and they sell some of it. The other six months of the year, they can't produce anything. Why? Because for three months, they're under 10 feet of water during the rainy season, the flood season. That starts in September, October, November, usually, is flood season, rain season. And then comes the dry season, and that's where they get no rain at all. So your crops dry up. I mean, they don't have you know, water wells that they can pump water out of to dig a well to them. That's a major undertaking and difficult to do. And, you know, then they would have to have, 
you know, if they got crops, it's hard to pull it up in buckets. You'd have to have a pumping mechanism, which means you have to have electricity. There's all kinds of complications involved, and it becomes difficult for them. So for six months a year, they don't have a lot of ability to feed themselves. You know, every time they leave their house, they're in a boat for three months because everything's underwater. The treetops are the only thing sticking out. So when the Koreans came in and started working with the Cambodians, they started this great project where they would get a, a, a buy-in of a farmer. And these, most of these farmers own about U.S. equivalent of about two and a half acres. It's about the average size farmer, two acres. So not a very big farm. A rice field and a family of three or four can easily do all the labor for that, that many rice fields by themselves because most of the labor is, is hand manual labor or using oxen, uh, oxen to turn the soil, et cetera. Um, so the Koreans came in and they got the farmer to participate in this program. And they first thing they do is come in at the big backhoe and they dig a deep hole. And they pile up all the soil from this hole that they dug. And I mean, I'm talking about a big hole, like 40 or 50 feet wide and 20 or 30 feet long and 10 or 15 feet deep. And that makes a big pile of soil right next to the hole that they just dug. Um, And usually this is somewhere, you know, pretty flat ground or near their house. Um, And on top of this big pile, that's now 12 or 13 feet tall, that they flatten off the surface and they build a strawberry garden up on top of there. That's their objective. You know, the soil that they've taken from the bottom of this hole is terrible soil. So you couldn't really grow anything up there if you didn't have a good environment, which the straw bales provide. Now, they have tons of rice straw because of their rice production. And currently, what they do with the rice straw at the end of the harvest is they burn it. It's really bad for the environment. Everybody involved, it leaves behind some nutrients, but not as many nutrients as if that straw was decomposed. But they really can't wait for it to decompose. They, You know, it would take too long in that environment, so they just burn it how they get rid of it and we all know that causes global warming and it causes all kinds of problems and it just contaminates the environment you know send these clouds of smoke all over the place and so now what we're doing is we're encouraging them and their government is encouraging them which we're going to talk about a little later the the uh the bail celebration event that they have celebrating straw essentially to to try to help these people understand that straw has value um, is, a, is a whole other thing that these people at Coach are working on. But they gather up their straw, they make it into bales, they put it on top of these mounds, and they condition the bales, and then they plant them. So now they have, even when the floods come, they have bales that are above this height so that they can mm-hmm. grow food in these bales, food that their diet is missing, beans and, and you know, squash and other carbohydrates and starches and, and proteins that they need in their diet when they have nothing essentially except for some stored rice. It's the only thing they have to eat other than uh, what they can produce themselves on top of this mound in the straw bale. So so just to back up a second, just mm -hmm. to back up a second. So these mounds are created to mitigate the issue of flooding so that the straw bale can be above all of that. But right. then how do they get up there if there's flooding going on? Do they have to swim out to the straw? <laughs> I mean, how well, do they do that? The one the one property or the two properties where I was at, the mound of soil was close enough to their house they could have a plank from the house over to the mound of soil. So it's kind of like they built a backyard <laughs> is really what it is. Wow. Um, otherwise, they would just get in their canoe and they would canoe over to the to the mound of soil. And then, and that's where their farming would be happening is on top of this mound. Now, their their mound is probably about the top of the mound is probably about as big as 
um, you know, maybe your living room or my living room and kitchen or combination together, that's all the bigger it is. So it's not huge, but it's enough to have a good sized garden and be able to produce crops. Um, yeah, that's all the more space they need. And this provides enough production, hopefully to, to be able to feed their family and, and maybe have some extra, uh, to be able to sell as well. Because everybody's hungry at that time of year. And they rely basically on a lot of outside food aid is how they survive. And they don't want to do that. They would rather have their own production than having to rely on somebody else. But, um, you know, it's unfortunate that for for many of them, it's, it's a time when they, they often go to bed hungry during that time of year. Wow. And this and, is a great solution for them. And prior to this, they would just dig the mound anyway and then plant on top no. of the mound or no prior to this they never dug a hole because they didn't they never thought about this they, you know most people there when they see this hole they've never seen a hole that big in their life you have to remember most of these people have never been 20 miles from their house in their life and they've never seen a hole in the ground this big to them it's the most amazing thing ever this big hole and it's because they they don't have a backhoe you know for human beings to dig a hole that big that would take a monumental effort uh, you know, so most of them never even seen a hole in the ground. They never even thought about it. Hey, if we dug a deep hole and we piled up the soil, we could have a garden on top of that soil. So this is a new concept, a, a paradigm shift in agriculture. They, they never built mounds of soil until the Koreans came to them with this idea and said, Hey, we're going to dig a deep hole and we're going to pile up the soil. Now, during the drought season, when there's no water anywhere, this big hole that was left behind right after the flood season, it's still filled with water. It's like a giant water tank. And you still get some soil seepage or some um, water seepage that comes in the bottom of this hole. So now all they need is to get the water out of that hole and up on top of the mound to water their garden during the dry season. And they can grow crops during the dry season. Um, they also have farm, small farm fields where they'll plant corn um, and other things. And then they water it using the water from that giant hole in the ground. Uh, you know, pull it up in pails. And some of them have a pump you know, some rudimentary pump mechanism that they use to get the water out of the hole and water their crops. Okay. So it solves two problems. It solves the rainy season. And the reason straw bales work so well, remember, is because one of the big advantages of straw bale gardening is that you can't flood a straw bale. You know, if you put a whole bunch of water on top, it'll hold a certain amount of water, but then the bale, it just drains off the bottom of the bale. So even when there's monsoon rains and you're getting, you know, an hour, two hours of intensive rain every day, excess water just flows out the bottom of the bale. So it really creates a perfect environment. If you tried to garden in soil on top of that mound, the soil is going to be always saturated and probably nothing would grow because there's no air down in that soil The you know because it rains every day, you know, an hour, two hours of heavy, hard rain during the rainy season every day. I mean, they get, you know, three, four inches of rain every day during the rainy season. Sometimes we get a foot during the day. I remember reading you. You had posted this on your page at some point, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's the perfect medium for them. Yeah, it works really well. And then to have, you know, I had nothing to do with this concept. I can't take credit for that, of digging the holes and building the mounds. That's the Korean, you know, their ingenuity and their solution to a problem. And then, and then they were just looking for a substrate to put on top of these mounds, something that would help solve this problem. And, and they, in their research, they came across straw bale gardening and they, you know, they thought, well, this is going to work really well. And, and it turns out it does. The two in combination work well together. 
Hmm. Well, and just geographically speaking, Cambodia is not next door to Korea. Their neighbors are Vietnam, Laos, and Thailand. And Korea is way north of that. Yeah. Let's see, China separates them. So yeah. we're not talking about point. like Minnesota, <laughs> Iowa here. This is like Minnesota, right. Vermont kind of is what I think of it as. Yeah, it's a good flight, that's for sure. You know, I flew into Seoul, Korea, and then flew from there into Siem Reap. So okay. it's a five-hour flight, I think. So it's not next door at all. It's like going across the country, actually. So Which makes it going even across more, our country. Yeah, it makes it even more fascinating to me that they have taken Cambodia under their wing. Do they do that for the entire region then, or is it just something special with Cambodia mm-hmm. after what they went through? You know, I, I think it's just kind of Cambodia that is Korea's little sister country because the Cambodians struggle a lot. And I think the Koreans, you know, there was a time when they struggled and the U.S. was there to help them and, you know, fight a war and all kinds of things and, and help them recover. And I think it's just kind of payback for them to help Cambodia after what Cambodia went through. Hmm. And you know, they're, they're a lot closer than we are to Cambodia, certainly. And, you know, they have a lot of cultural similarities, you know, both being sort of Asian cultures. I think they understand, their people understand each other, you know, not language wise, but understand the culture of, um, and the Cambodians love Korean food. And you see a lot of Korean restaurants in Cambodia and the Koreans love Cambodian culture and food as well. So Mm. that's part of it. Interesting. So South Korea reaches out to you, and this is how this yes. whole journey begins. Yeah, it started this guy, Chio Lee, emails me and says, hey, we're interested in learning about strawberry gardening, and we have a conference coming up, and we'd love to find someone to be a presenter. Would you be interested? And so it happened very quickly. I mean, this wasn't like it happened eight, you know, a year in advance, or a lot of conferences I do in the U.S. are already booked for 2018 and, and beyond. You know, it's they plan ahead a lot. These guys are kind of, can you come in three weeks? And so it just so happened, I had to move one event around, I think, or maybe it was two events around a little bit to make this work, but I really wanted to do it. So I rearranged my schedule a little bit and, um, you know, we worked it out. They, they were, you know, they have a tight budget. These guys don't have a ton of money to throw around. So I, it isn't like I was going to charge them a, a huge fee to go over there and do this presentation. Normally I'm a paid speaker and that's how I make my living um, speaking and writing books, but with this opportunity was too good to pass up. So essentially I, this is completely volunteer uh, to go over there and help them. And then they covered, you know, flight and actual out of pocket expenses, but um, through their grant programs, et cetera. Um, But it, it, it ended up working out really well. I, you know, obviously, I don't speak Khmer, which is the language, the national language of Cambodia. Um, but I learned a few words so that I could you know, say hi, and, and I've forgotten them now, but I, I knew them at the time. Just a few, <laughs> a few minor words, thank you, and things like that, so I could speak a, a few, a little bit to to the people. But otherwise, they had two interpreters that were with me the whole time, and there was three staff members essentially from two from Kotra and one from the trade um, division of Cambodia, sort of a governmental official. And they traveled with me the whole time. Um, We had a driver in a van and, you know, some of the most remote locations on earth we went to 
um, I was, I gotta tell you, I was a little nervous. You know, I did some, my wife's in the travel industry and she said, you know, there's a lot of travel warnings about Cambodia and there's a lot of, you know, areas, bad stuff that happens. And I said, you know, you can, you can live your life and never take any risk and, you know, everything can be perfectly safe. And sometimes you just need to, to venture out there and take a little bit of risk. And I said, I'm, I'm, this is my time. I'm going to do this. So I wasn't, um, you know, I was a little nervous. I got to tell you, but, but it turns out it was, I was, it was completely uncalled for the, the nervousness. It was like Mm -hmm. the friendliest people, you know, I never ran into anything that made me feel unsafe um, at all. I mean, it was really, really a nice time and in a beautiful country. And this, you know, the bigger cities we were in, Phnom Penh and Siem Reap are gorgeous. I mean, if someone's looking for a vacation in in Asia, look at Siem Reap. It's it's like going to you know the most beautiful beaches in Mexico. You know, sun and sand and a beautiful resort. They've got them in, in Siem Reap in Cambodia. And the prices are right. I mean, it's really a good value. So hmm. any of the audience members are looking for a great place to go on vacation. I think Siem Reap oh. in Cambodia is a great spot to go. So did the U.S. Department of Ag play a role? They didn't. They didn't really. And, you know, they, they've got a lot of projects going on of their own. In the, you know, USDA does support a lot of uh, ag development programs and things, but this particular one just happened to be uh, really run and sponsored by COTRA. Um, I don't know that any of the funding at all come came through the USDA. I don't think so. Um, and I'm not privy to exactly where their funding comes from. I know they're always looking for funding. So if someone out there is, works for a foundation and wants to donate to a really good cause, uh, you know, this is, this would be a good program, you know, something that really is changing lives. That's the thing is people talk, how many times in your life have you talked about world hunger, right? Well, if we could only every beauty pageant contestant I've ever heard, if we could solve world hunger, <laughs> that would be my ultimate wish, right? They're, they're actually doing it. This is how we're going to solve world hunger. You can't solve world hunger by run, flying airplanes of food and semi loads of food to these starving populations. That's not going to solve the problem because the problem is those semi loads of food end up in the hands of the, all the guys with guns. And then they're the ones who gain more power in their country by determining who gets that food aid. You know, that's how they keep their thumb on top of these populations. So if you can just teach the population how to use what's around them to grow their own food, they, they get out from under the thumb of these dictators. And this truly, not only can it change their diet and change their, you know, their food security situation, this can change their lives and their future of their country because of how, you know, they can get out from under the thumb of these people who are their, you know, their control, their, they control their population with food and the food aid during the six months of, of hard times. And so, you know, not only is it, solving some of the problems that you would that would be apparent to everyone just by looking at the situation but it solves a lot of underlying political issues in their countries as well um so it's an important thing it's a really important project underestimated by many people how important this is and if we can solve that problem in cambodia there's no reason why it can't spread to uh, many parts of vietnam and many parts of thailand and other countries in southeast asia and Solving the, this problem of not having to have food aid from outside sources 
can really start to change their economy and their their po- political uh, situations, et cetera, and make the world much more stable in that part of the world. Could you kind of gauge their reaction to that as you were explaining to them what this was going to mean for them? Well, for most of the, I would say, the end-user participants, which there were a few of, most of the people who came to the conference were educators, you know, directors of NGOs, non-governmental organizations that are going to go out and teach this method and teach. So I was teaching teachers in many situations, but a few of the people who came were actual participants. So they were farmers who owned a little plot of land, and they're the ones whose house we were going to go to and set up these gardens. And for those gentlemen, it probably doesn't, they really don't care. You know, they don't, they're not political at all. And they're not, you know, they're not really interested. They just want to have something to eat year round. They really don't care about the politics. But to the guys, the people who are educators and who really understand the government situation and kind of what's happening politically, et cetera, they, I think they really understand and they, they appreciate it much more so. Um, you know, I guess the more you see, the more you see the politics and the corruption, the more you want to find a solution. And, you know, when you've got a country of people that really are in desperate straits for, for part of the year at least, um, and you know you can control them by controlling who gets what in terms of food and money, it, uh, it makes you look for solutions to that problem. And I think they, you know, this is not a, this hasn't taken over all of Cambodia. Let's, let's not be mistaken. These are pocket projects that are just getting started. But I think they see the future of it and they see that it could evolve, certainly. And mm. the more support they can get, the, the more quickly it would evolve. Well, let's do a little crash course in Cambodia. Pick your brain a little bit on the country oh in general before we dive into some okay. of the things that you did there. Uh, Cambodia is called, uh, it's a country that's called the Kingdom of Wonder. And I loved what you wrote on your personal page. You said, how did Cambodian rice farmers react to a 6'4", 280-pound American guy trying to convince them to grow vegetables in a straw bale? I loved that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this province that you visited, Bantie Minche? Um, well, it's about two hours, two and a half hours out of Reap. Siem Reap is right along the coast, if you look it up, right where Cambodia meets the Gulf of Thailand, I guess, or that, that area. So two hours out of there, really in the, uh, the remotest part of, I mean, the roads, when you finally got out there, are you know, dirt roads that we were on, bumpy dirt roads, with cows walking around on them all over the place. So quite a remote area. Uh, there's a, oh no, I should Siem Reap is more, inland than on the coast it's on a body of water i guess the i shouldn't say i don't know my geography very well in cambodia either jennifer um it's actually on the tonal sap it's like a it's on a river i think that expands looks it's like a huge lake um almost looks like an ocean you can't see the other side it's really big body of water but anyway it's a beautiful coastal area i didn't get to spend a whole lot of time you know walking around resorts and, and that kind of thing the only real cultural thing I did while I was there is I went to um, Angkor Wat 
and Angkor Wat is one of the seven man-made wonders of the world. Um, it's an ancient temple that was built by monks, you know, thousands of years ago. And um, I got to spend basically most of the day there and get a tour um, of Angkor Wat. It's a place where one of the things that should be on everybody's bucket list in the world to see, it's just amazing. It's like this beautiful temple that small small city almost walled city that just ro- rises up in the middle of the jungle in in Cambodia it's, it was really a, a neat experience and um, certainly culturally enriching probably the you know one of the neatest places I, I have been in my life um, in terms of really ancient ruins and history and you know, just so much to learn about. I hadn't, I hadn't even heard of Angkor Wat before I went there, and uh, it was really fascinating to learn about. Um, but, you know, spending time in Siem Reap, a short amount of time, actually it was on my way, um, before I went to, let's see, when did we do it? The Siem Reap part of it uh, and the visit to Angkor Wat was right at the end of my trip, I think, before we went to Phnom Penh. And we finished the trip in Phnom Penh. Yeah, it was before we left to go to Phnom Penh, I believe. Um, but, you know, I didn't see a, a ton of the country. And I, you know, I'm, I was asked to come there, uh, you know, two or three weeks before my trip actually happened. So I didn't do a lot of preparation. Okay. You know, I, I uh, didn't have to apply for a visa. When you go there, you can get just a traveler's visitor's visa at the, essentially when you get there. So you don't have to worry about that in advance. And I didn't do a whole lot of preparation. I didn't have to prepare travel or hotel because that was all done for me in advance. I had to think about where I was driving because we had a driver in a van the whole time. And a lot of our discussion while we're driving places was me asking questions about their culture and about, you know, what is that? And what is this guy doing over here? That could, those kind of questions. And, you know, they did their best to answer as many questions as they could, but you know, if I were there for a month or six months, I certainly would be an expert on Cambodia, but I, I can't claim to be at this point. I, you know, I, I feel a little bit like I should know more than I do about the country, but, um, I don't, I probably don't know as much as I should. Hmm. And so, uh, you were there for a total of how many days, Joel? Um, it was about a total of about a 10 day trip for me. Okay. So I was only in country there. I stayed in Seoul for a couple of days um, and visited a friend of mine who was there before I went in, just so I could get acclimated to the time change. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't going to land and see Reap, and then they wanted me to do these classroom presentations, which, you know, they take a really long time because you have an interpreter. So everything I say, I have to, you know, I have to say it and then wait for the interpreter to interpret it. And then if somebody has questions, interpret the questions to me and then answer the questions to the interpreter. So doing that mechanism takes a lot, makes it a lot longer time to give a presentation. And so I didn't want to show up and then have to give a presentation the next day and be falling asleep, you know, in the middle of the presentation. So I went in a couple of days early just to get acclimated to the time change so that I could be on the same time zone as everybody else. And, you know, bright eyed and bushy tailed in the mornings when we did these classroom presentations. So when you're there, you you show up, what's the reaction? Do they kind of hang back a little bit? Do they rush yeah, up to you? What they, is yeah, the you know, reaction? They, 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 knew, they knew an American guy was coming. They, you know, I'm big even for a, 
for uh, American guys. So I'm on the larger, taller and bigger side. So yeah, they were, you know, they were amazed by that, but you know, I, I suppose they just figure all Americans are tall and big. Like <laughs> really didn't know many of them. I know, especially the children. Um, we went to a school one day and oh, there's probably a hundred little kids running around and none of them had ever seen a, a white guy like me before. So it was, they, they were fascinated by it. And, and I was fascinated by them, you know, as well. And just sort of the fun they can have out playing with a, you give them one soccer ball and the whole, the whole school is having a good time. Um, one quick little side story that I thought, I thought was very interesting was they had an ice cream man who came to the school and he's completely unauthorized as you can imagine, <laughs> but he comes and he's got a little bicycle really with a couple of little small tubs on the front or tanks. And he uses ice and salt in order to super cool the water in this outside tank. And then in the inside tank, essentially all he has is water in there and he scrapes the water off the sides of the tank and puts it in a cone. And then he puts sugar water on top that has a flavor. So a cherry snow cone is really what he's serving them. What we would think of as a snow cone. And I think they were a nickel or a dime, you know, equivalent. And, I said to the guys I was with, I said, you know, I'd be willing to buy a, a snow cone for all these kids if they want one. And he's like, oh, please don't. Please don't do that. And I said, well, why not? He said, because most, the vast majority of these little kids don't have the money to buy a snow cone. And he's not supposed to be here to begin with. And he said, if you have them stand in line, they won't go back to class. They'll wait here because they want that snow cone. And he said, if you notice, it takes them a minute or so to make a snow cone. That'd be a hundred minutes. That'd be two hours before these kids get back in school. And he said, more than likely it'll take all day because as soon as they finish the snow cone, they're going to get to the end of the line to get another one. <laughs> and he said, and they don't have, we don't have dental care here like you do. He said, and the, these kids' teeth will get rotten because they're, they shouldn't eat sugar like that. And he said, just, you know, the sentiment is great. He said, no, I appreciate it. But he said, please don't do that. It would be oh. a disaster. Oh so you don't gosh. think through cultural situations like this. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to be a nice guy. And he just explains to me in a you know, lovely way how it just doesn't work. You know, the things that we think would be generous and nice, mm -hmm. if you think it all the way through, really isn't a good idea. Yeah. And that's just one little tiny example. I mean, there's much bigger scale things where, you know, our government or other governments think they're helping these people in Cambodia by providing them food aid on a regular basis. And in reality, what they're doing is making them, you know, reliant upon this food aid where we should be educating them and teaching them other methods to grow their own food, you know, and he's trying to correlate the two, really. So hmm. I thought it was fascinating. It is. Well, once you were in Cambodia, you were actually conducting training courses. So what was that like? Where were you at? Were you inside? Were you outside? Who was in your audience? Um, the classroom was a, you know, it wasn't anything super fancy, but it was very nice and comfortable. They had a LCD projector and, you know, all the modern accommodations. They had a speaker, a, a you know, microphone, so like a PA system. Um, so people could hear me. There was the audience was probably, um, I don't know, seventy-five to a hundred people, maybe. Okay. Um, and they, most of them were NGOs, uh, participants in the program. You know, the actual farmers, uh, government. I think government people, people who were educators who maybe 
like sort of like extension service a- extension agents like we would we would consider a uh extension service office here in okay. the United States that teach agriculture and you know help help people with their farming practices that kind of thing um and there's just a big variety of people who attended i think they gave them um you know notice that someone was coming and going to teach these classes and uh, you know, tried to get some, garner some interest and they provide food, you know, lunch and, and stuff like that for them to try to encourage them to come because, you know, everybody is struggling. So you have to think about if you're traveling somewhere, how are you going to pay for the gas for your motor scooter and, you know, or your car, how are you going to get a ride? Or where are you going to stay? You know, all of these become issues for them. Um, it's not like us. We just get a motel somewhere or hotel and, you're not to Denny's and have breakfast, you know, it just doesn't, it, it's completely different. So yep. for them to attend a conference like this is a really important big deal yes. for a lot of these people. Um, but yeah, it went very smoothly. I mean, they, they asked for presentations and he kind of told me in advance what they would like to learn about and, um, you know, what kind of details they wanted to know. And I tried to customize my presentation a little bit for their, needs and their purposes. One of the things I was really concerned about is my method of strawberry gardening involves adding a nitrogen source to the straw in order to get the decomposition started. And, you know, here in the United States, it's easy. You just run to the garden center and you buy a bag of fertilizer or you buy a bag of organic fertilizer and you go home and you put it on. It's pretty simple. But for them, it's not, I didn't think at least it would be that simple. Now, as it turns out, they have lots of fertilizer. That's really? one of the things that they have lots of, and they understand because they grow rice, and rice takes lots of nitrogen. So they have um, urea nitrogen, great big bags of it the farmers have to be able to, to fertilize their fields. So having fertilizer available, I, I don't think is going to be a problem for most of them. That's one thing that their government does provide them that, you know, I think they probably have to pay for it, but it's subsidized, so it's relatively inexpensive for them to have. And they'll they'll be able to, to have all the fertilizer they need to do their strawberry garden. Hmm. Um, but I also did a whole bunch of, an, you know, manure uh, presentation on how they could use manure, you know, from different things, and they could use... One of the big mistakes I made in my presentations, I talked about using animal blood and how they could use, you know, the blood from any processing of meat and they said one of the gentlemen interrupted me and said well in our culture we already use the blood you know we dry the blood and we we drink the blood or we use it to make food we eat it so he said we we wouldn't use the blood as fertilizer we would you know that's part of our culture we and i didn't understand i didn't know that i didn't realize that so Hmm. you know that's kind of a slip up not to not to know that but you know it's kind of what happens i learned a lot too while i was there then we talked about um cow manure, you know, how they could use cow manure. And they said, well, how do you, how would you get the cow manure? And I said, well, you just go and gather up the cow manure from the pen. They said, oh, no, our cows just walk around everywhere. So we would have to follow the cow to get the manure. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I never even thought about it, but that's very true. I mean, they do have some cow manure, because I'm sure the cow comes back to their pen. And once in a while, they leave a little manure behind. But the vast majority is when they're out eating and walking around, they're fertilizing right behind wherever they're walking and it would be difficult for them to gather up all of that cow manure. Huh. So, yeah, it was it was the the cultural difference and just the overall uh, difference was was amazing. 
I bet it was. Well, you've talked about straw bale gardening now for years, thousands of presentations. You get hundreds of questions every day. How did their questions differ from typical questions you might get in the United States, or were they not different at all? They really weren't that different. No, most of them, you know, we, we got into some of the biology and the science and that kind of stuff because I think that's important for people to understand. But you got to remember, when I just talked to you about looking through a microscope, a 400-power microscope, if I said that to this audience, they've never seen, many of them have never seen a microscope. They don't know what I'm talking about. What is a microscope? If you're talking about 400-power microscope, they wouldn't even know what that means. And it was very helpful because the interpreters I had that spoke Khmer and English and a couple of them also spoke Korean. So it was great to have, you know, somebody who, who could interpret and they understand the culture. Um, one of them happened to go to college here in the United States. So he really understands the culture of the United States as well. And knows, you know, a little bit about agriculture here as well. Um, and he could say to me, you know, they're not going to understand when you say this. Even I would I would say something, and he would say, you know, we need to figure out a way to say that because many of the in the audience are not going to understand that. So mm. let's figure out a way we can say it, you know. And, and you don't even think about it because the audiences I speak to, everybody knows what a microscope is. Everybody is knows what a four hundred power microscope is. Um, I at least I assume they do. Most of them do. Um, but in that environment, it probably was the opposite. Most of them didn't probably know and had never used a microscope in their life. So, you know, just things like that, that you don't even think about during a presentation. I've done this a thousand times, but you know, you really got to think through how are these people going to take this information and what are they going to understand and what, what's going to be difficult for them to comprehend. And that, that was probably one of the hardest things to, to think this through on the fly as I'm talking and given the same presentation I've done so many times to think it, think that through. Um, and, and parts of it, I, you know, I didn't think through and I said things that they didn't understand. And then we had to backtrack and figure out a new way to do it, a new way to say it. Well, and especially sad when you think about their history, right? Because there's a reason why they're in this predicament, not being terribly literate after basically genocide, right? Of anybody who could read or write. Right. And there's not, they're not, they're not unintelligent. That's the thing. They're intelligent people, but it just means that they didn't have opportunity when they were young to yes. read and write. And that's a good thing in the long run because it saved them from being, you know, murdered, yes. killed by their government um, because they didn't. And now, you know, now we're four, 50 years past that or, or further and 60 years past that. And some of these guys are now 75 you know, 80-year-old farmers still farming away. Hmm. No Social Security over there like there is here in the United States. <laughs> they don't have an IRA. Yep. Mean, they work until they can't work anymore, and then hopefully they have family to help support them and help them survive. But there's not, I mean, it's, you talk about third world. There's not, you mm -hmm. know, modern health care and modern dental care and, hmm. you know, none of that stuff exists. 
Well, I noticed on your Facebook page, one of your followers had a great idea. And this was from Laura Lachance Stubbs. And she wrote, if they can't read, why not make a picture book with all of the steps to create the straw bale garden? People that have done it or who have been to a class can help people who have the book understand it better. Just a thought. I thought it was a great idea, especially if you end up doing more of this type of work. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea also. Yeah, and I think the the guys at Hockton probably do that. You know, they do it in a more rudimentary way. You know, a piece of paper that shows, all of them know what a pop can is. All of them know what a water bottle is. So Mm -hmm. instead of saying a cup of fertilizer, we would say a water bottle cut to here. This is how much you should use. Yeah. You know, because they can all find a water bottle. Unfortunately, there's litter everywhere over there. So they can find a water bottle and they know, okay, this is about how much I should use. You know, so it's all, you know, and the, and the guys that often that are the ones who are going to teach this are going to make the materials in Khmer language and, you know, pictures and things like that probably are are what they end up doing for, for the people who can't understand the, the written language. They can look at the images. And then once you, once you show them how to do it, and they get through, then they can repeat the process. You know, they, they have really good memories. You show them how to do it. They can remember what you showed them. You just can't mail it to them and say, read this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing is it's important for people to understand that it's not that they're not smart. Right. It's that they just can't read and write, which to most of us doesn't make a lot of sense, but it, you know, once you meet them, you can understand and mm-hmm. generous people. I mean, the one farmer whose home we went to to set up a small straw and kind of brought a bunch of the officials team with us. So there's probably 12 of us or 15 of us at this guy's house. And, you know, we set up a little straw garden and his wife and he kind of participated and showed him how to put the fertilizer and water on, et cetera. And for lunch, he went over to his cornfield. Now you got to remember, this is a tiny cornfield, Jennifer. He doesn't have 40 acres out and back. He has a tiny little plot of corn and he picked an ear of corn off, off of the cornfield for everybody who was there. And he went over and he killed two, one or two chickens of his own chicken stock. And he made essentially fried chicken and corn for us for lunch. Wow. Out of his own, I mean, this is a guy who doesn't have very much. And for him to do that to these strangers who, you know, he knows they're officials, but, and he knows they're there to try to help him, but, you know, he doesn't know these people. There's no personal relationship there. And he gave up his own food supply to, to make us lunch. I thought that was just so telling mm. of this population and how, you know, what kind of people they are. It's amazing. Gosh, what kept you from just hanging your head and crying right there? I would just yeah, be. Yeah, I know. Totally and they and the guys out. that I was with, you know, I said, you know, should we, should I leave them some money or something? And he's like, no. Because that would make him feel like, you know, he was doing it to be paid. And he's he's not. He's doing it because he just wants to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's probably it's probably not a good idea to leave him money behind. Now, maybe Octon or somebody who he works with on a regular basis will will compensate him or did compensate him at some point for, for giving that up. Because that's, you know, for his family, that's about 12 days worth of food mm-hmm. that he gave up to us. So mm-hmm. that was pretty pretty generous very it's amazing to see these how generous these people are you know with what they have what little they have so i'm starting to get a picture 
of what it looked like to be there. Are their homes sited on high land then if they've got to deal with this flooding and then have basically a drawbridge to get them over to the straw bale garden? They're unspilt. Each of their, I don't even, I mean, if you think of a really nice treehouse when you were a kid that's up on four posts in the corner, that's kind of about what their houses are like. They're not much bigger than a, you know, than a kid's treehouse probably eight feet by eight feet and up on four posts or bamboo poles, essentially that are 10 or 12 feet high. And then their surroundings are kind of tin. They got tin up on the roof um, or plastic or metal or wood or whatever they can find. I mean, there are homes in the nicer neighborhoods that are, you know, have, you know, beautiful brick walls and stucco and the tile roof, et cetera, for where the rich guys live. But the vast majority of the population lives in these little shacks on on stilts. You drive through the small towns, and you're driving on the road, and you know six feet away from the road are these houses. Underneath, there's activity and things going on around these stilts, but it's up on top of the stilts is where they live. So as it starts to rain, the only way they can get around is using these canoes. So every house has at least one or two canoes outside, and I... I talked to me. I wasn't there during the rainy season, but I talked to these guys, and they said, "Yeah, no, the rain will be, the water will be right up a foot below where their house is, and they tie the canoes right on the side of the house. And if they want to go go somewhere to the neighbor's house or to go somewhere for any reason, like the kids go to school, he said sometimes they'll take the boat and go to school. Um, school isn't over there like it is here, where every kid gets picked up by a school bus and brought to school, and the taxpayers pay for the school. If you want your kid to go to school over there, you have to pay for it." You know, and the teacher will call if you haven't paid your bill and say, hey, you know, I want my $6 this month to teach your kid. Otherwise, your kid can't come to my school anymore. And, you know, so the kid, they take education seriously over there. And and the mom and dad have to come up with the money to pay for it, you know, by, by doing something. So hmm. hopefully they have a little extra rice to sell or, you know, some way that they can make money to, to be able to pay for their kid to go to school. But not every kid goes to school like they do here. It just isn't. It's a different different way of a different culture, you know? So you've talked a little bit about the conditions, you know, the dry season, the rainy season, the flooding, that type of thing. There's so much that straw bale gardening can help kind of mitigate for them. But what are the other conditions there that you had to take into consideration for straw bale gardening? Well, a couple of things that we ran into. One is they have a lot of, I guess I would call them for lack of better terms, because I don't know exactly what they were, but grubs, these big giant worms. And when we, we went to the Octon, the NGO, and we were looking through some of the bales that they had set out and had conditioned and had some plants growing in them, et cetera. When we tip them over to the side, there was all these big white grubs underneath. And it kind of, you know, freaked me out. I'm like, oh, wow, I've never seen big giant white grubs like that. What are you going to do with them? He said, oh, we love those. We pick them because we eat those. Oh. <laughs> so we love that those are there. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I didn't realize that, but more power to you. And then also in my presentation, I was talking about rodents, you know, and I said, you got to be careful because if you don't keep the bales nice and moist on a regular basis, then they could attract rodents, you know, because of nothing a mouse or a rat loves better than a nice dry bale of straw. They make a hotel in there, you know, and, and it's a good place to live. Um, but I said, as long as you keep it nice and moist, that won't happen. And they said, oh, 
we love having rats if the rats came because the rats are worth a dollar a piece. They sell them and they eat them. So the, the rats, they were in favor of having the rats come, um, a couple of the farmers. So, I mean, what a cultural difference, you know? I mean, drastically different than the attitude you would ever get from a strawberry gardener in the United States. Um, they encouraged the rats to come. They were looking forward to that. So that's an extra dollar per rat. Oh my gosh. And, wow. Yeah. And when you have a flooded environment like that, I mean, I'm sure the rats are looking for a, a place to dock and, you know, have them come up on top of your mound of soil. You'd think that would be an issue, but not for them. They were, he was looking forward to it, the farmer I talked to. So. Well, to each his own, right? Let's talk a little bit about the organic medium that you were working with, in this case, rice straw. You mentioned that prior to your suggestion to use it for straw bale gardening, it was burned. Yeah. You know, really, it wasn't necessarily my, you know, Kotra has already been doing this. Kota, uh, the Koreans have already been working with them on not burning their rice straw and trying to decompose it. They pot, they make windrows, windrows out of it, long, like narrow piles, and then they grow mushrooms and things on it. Um, so trying to teach them, educate them that there's other uses for this straw, that straw can provide more value, you know, than what just burning it provides them. They know that some nutrients come out of the straw, um, but you get a lot more nutrients if you just decompose the straw and then use that compost on your fields rather than just burning it. Um, so they've been trying to educate them, and one, that's one of the reasons they started this bale festival, celebration of straw. Um, and they get like you know thirty or forty thousand people that come to this celebration. They have entertainment and they have food vendors, and um, you know they've moved it around a couple times to different locations. Um, but they do it during the dry season, essentially, when the rice fields are bare, because they, they do it on a big 40-acre 40, 40 plot of rice fields that they just rent for this for this festival. Um, and this year they actually did it in a different location. They did it where a, there's a Korean um, construction company that has a basis, uh, an area in Cambodia, and they did it at their home base essentially this construction company's home base and they have a great big man-made pond in the middle so they had a swimming pond in the middle and they have um he's trying to develop like a little place for tourism you know where people could come and sit in these little shacks and have lunch and that kind of stuff so they, they did it at his location he apparently he donated or volunteered his location for the event this year so we went and previewed that location while I was there. We were kind of going in that direction, so they thought they would stop and take a look at it. And yeah, it was a lot better location, I thought, than the middle of a of a dry rice field. But so they kind of have moved the event around over the years, and the event has grown. They get entertainment that comes in, and they have you know singers and whatnot, and then they have art projects. So they take straw bales um, and they make art out of them, all different kinds of weird art um you know just to show that there's other uses for straw and that straw can be a, a valuable resource you know and part of it is um sponsored by the government you know and encouraging them not to burn the straw and, and to put more value on it and then they have a big straw bell garden set up at this event so that people can see that you can use it for gardening and and sort of a demonstration plot of how this whole process works 
et cetera. So it, yeah, it, uh, it wasn't my idea to, to start using the straw for the gardening process. Um, in, in Cambodia, essentially they had looked up information online and they had figured out about straw bale gardening and they were already sort of working on it, but they weren't being real successful because, you know, nobody had dug deep enough into the process of how this whole thing works. And they'd tried it on a limited scale and they had a few things that had been successful. Um, but they really weren't, they weren't getting the conditioning part of it right. And I think once we got them to that point where, where they did the conditioning, then it really started to take off and they started to see some good production out of it. How does rice straw compare to what we use? Is it thicker? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's more leafy. There's more leaf than stock material. So it's actually, um, it, it actually works really well. You know, it has a good ability to absorb just like wheat straw or oat straw or barley straw here in the United States. Um, and, but it has a, the bales I think are maybe denser just because there's more leaf to, to the hollow stem proportion. It does have a higher carbon content, which means it takes more nitrogen um, in order to break the straw down, we're, we're really trying to get to a, uh, a ratio of about 24 to 1 carbon to nitrogen. That's the perfect balance for bacteria to reproduce. Most wheat straw is about 45 or 50 to 1. Rice straw is a little higher than that, it's about 60 to 1. Oat straw is a little lower, you know, 45, 40 to 1, um, where hay is about 28 to 1. So, hey, you don't need much nitrogen at all. It already has a lot of nitrogen in it. So, you know, uh, it does take a little bit more nitrogen to get their process to work, but they have plenty of water uh, during the season when they when they need to do the conditioning. You know, they got water everywhere, so that's not a problem. It's about providing water. They just need, a, you know, two cups of urea per bale, and their bales start cooking like crazy, you know, get that bacteria growth inside there, and 15 days later, they're ready to go. You know, straw decomposes really quickly over there because it's so hot and humid. They certainly can't garden in it for a whole year like we can here. Oh, Theirs is going to be three or four or five months, and their straw is going to be completely decomposed. Now they've got beautiful compost at that point. So eventually, what I'm hoping is the tops of all these mounds that we talked about will just be covered with a, with a two-foot layer of decomposed straw. It'll be like the most beautiful, lush compost on top of that mound that they they won't necessarily need to keep adding straw um they'll just be able to garden right in that but you know until they get to that point straw is gonna uh is gonna serve them well and they may still need bales just for the drainage factor that they get with the you know the above ground the raised bed technique okay now do they have pest issues that they have to face yeah they do have insect issues you know, I wouldn't say they're any worse or better than our insect issues are. You know, here in, in this part of the world where you and I are, it gets awful cold in the winter, and that helps solve a lot of our pest problems. Um, they don't get that kind of cold temperature, but they do get the flood season. So during the flood season, that helps eliminate a lot of insect problems, you know, just because it's so wet that a lot of insects that are soil-borne can't survive. So they, that helps them to a certain extent. Um, sort of cleans their their environment as well. But yeah, they do have bug issues. You know, I never got into enough detail with them about what insects are their major problems. You know, I'm sure they have 
mites and aphids and things like we have here as well. You know, maybe the Asian version of those, but um, but certainly they're they're great agricultural producers, so they understand you know how to use they use a lot more natural solutions over there than what we do here. Um, you know, they don't have a ability to buy and and the money to buy you know chemicals to pesticides and things to spray willy-nilly on their crops Um, a lot of stuff they do has to be a solution made from another plant material that you know helps get rid of a pest on on some other plant so a lot of the the pesticide or i guess i would call them insecticides they use are are natural Hmm. well there's an excellent article on your trip and it's by brent crane and it's called yeah. Spinning Straw into Food Security. And it shows you demonstrating conditioning the bale. And your class is standing around you. Some are taking <laughs> pictures on their phones. Were they all men? Was, was it an all-male class? Or did you have some women no. in your group as well? Yeah, there were a number of women in the group. So, which which was good to see, you know, that they're, that they're certainly open to, to having the, you know, it's, Different society, you never know how their women are, whether the women are going to be involved. But there was a number of women in the in the class the whole time, and very well respected. I mean, they would ask questions, and and you know, they they had the respect of the men in the audience. Maybe you know, considered to be uh, a couple of the women. I remember being sort of leaders in their organization. So hmm. you know, and they had brought their subsidiaries with them to the presentation and and many of those guys were the were the men so yeah they're you know they certainly don't um you know if they don't put women in the back of the bus over there that's for sure they're their women are right out there leaders in their agriculture so hmm, i was surprised to see that you know you never think you don't think that's going to happen when you go to a third world country like that but Women are pretty smart, Jennifer. Yes, they are. <laughs> I, they always, are. I always say, you know, I, in many cases, I'd rather have a woman running the show than the man because <laughs> very often the women get a lot more done than the men do, at least from my experience. No, from your lips to God's ears, Joel. Well, I read in one of the articles that there is a festival, this festival we've talked about, that, and it just happened. It was January 20th through the 22nd, and you had a link to it on your Facebook page in Learn to Grow a Strawberry Garden. And this festival in Cambodia is where they actually create straw bale art, and they show a picture of this huge straw bale crocodile and a huge straw bale turtle. It's made out of these rice straw bales. And it even mentioned that they made floating gardens with straw bales. How does that work? Well, when I was over there, we, the school that I mentioned that we went to with the, all the young kids, they have a pond like a small lake in their backyard and that's where they were doing some of the preliminary work on on designing this and essentially if you think about it a giant floating raft of bamboo and then bamboo has a certain buoyancy level so you put you know you make this giant raft and then you put straw bales on top of this bamboo raft and you condition the bales and you plant and now when the floods come this bamboo raft floats up with the floods so your straw bales stay above the flood level, flood water level. So if you didn't have the capacity to dig this deep hole that we talked about and pile it up, which remember that takes a big backhoe to come in and somebody has to do that. 
you could simply go into your woods by your house. I mean, there's bamboo everywhere there. And you could cut down a whole bunch of bamboo trees, make a big giant raft, put straw bales on that, condition them, plant them. Now it starts raining and it starts raining and it starts raining. And pretty soon that raft starts to float and it just goes up with the flood water. You keep it tied to a couple of trees or something to keep it from floating away. And essentially you have a floating garden with these bales on top and it works. I mean, it's, they had some gardens this last year that they did on these floating rafts and, and they proved that it's a viability, that it does work. You know, the bigger these rafts get, the easier it is, the more stable they are. You can walk out on them, et cetera. Uh, so at some point they need to scale it up to get much larger size, but um, what they've done so far works well. And they must kind it's of just, tether them, right? So that they can get to yeah. it. Yes, exactly. Okay. And this is not new, um, concept. This is not a new concept. There were Aztec Indians back in, I don't know when, a couple thousand years ago. You can look all this stuff up. There's actually information about it online. And they built what are called chinempas. Chinempas. And these chinempas were um, where they would go into like a swampland area with their canoe and they would reach down off the sides of the canoe and they'd dig out all the grass and muck and they would pile it up you know, make a big pile of it on top of the water. These reeds and things would float. Uh, they would pull them out of the, the base of that swamp, and they would pile them up. And they would get a great big, huge mound of these grasses or these, you know, weeds and things that were growing out of the bottom of this swamp. And when they got a big, huge pile, they would decompose the top of that pile, and they put their vegetables in the top of that mound, that floating big, giant mound. I mean, we're talking a mound like as big as your car floating mound wow. and then and that would support the weight of a person also so they they could grow vegetables up on top of there they could jump out of their canoe go up on top of here and the roots go down through this pile of decomposing organic material to get moisture and and the tops you know there is above the water level so even while it's raining and then when the flood waters came up the champas would go with the flood water and then when the floods went away they'd come back down again but it allowed them to make land that was not arable you know, it was not good farmland to to make the swampland into area that would grow food for the the population because they had so many people, these Aztec Indians in this part of the world, that um, that they needed more production, they needed more farmland, and they, this is the idea they came up with: is these chinampas, these floating gardens. Hmm. So really, it's you know, the straw bale gardening, floating garden method is just a takeoff of those. Chinampas, which were done so many thousands of years ago or hundreds and hundreds of years ago that today uh, we're just replicating using that same basic technology today. Well, and it just occurred to me as you were talking about the Chinampas and the fact that they have to canoe out to these gardens that if they're doing a straw bale crocodile for their art, there are probably real crocodiles that they have to worry about in the rainy <laughs> season, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh! And snakes, lots uh, of snakes in the uh, water. It's uh, a, they so they told me that the little kids that come to school, some of them that they can't have a canoe, they'll swim from their house uh, to the dry land. Oh. You know, and sometimes it can be a mile. And so they take their clothes off, put them in a plastic bag, and jump in the water. And they drag the plastic bag. When they get to the shore, they jump out of the water, put their clothes on, go to school, 
And going home, they do the same thing. Get to the edge of the water, take their clothes off, but they swim to home. And, you know, so they commute using the, by swimming. And he said, most of these little kids can swim like crazy, you know, because there's, there's snakes in the water, et cetera. I don't think a lot of them do that, but he said, you, every once in a while, you see a little kid swimming his way to school. Oh, my gosh. Well, I have to say, I think I would give up gardening if I had to battle crocodiles to do it. Oh, my gosh. I can't yeah. imagine. Yeah. That's crazy. Let's take a look at some of your pictures. So okay. there were pictures that you'd shared on that Bale and Patty Art Festival. So uh, it's if people want to look it up, they go to Facebook, and there is a page called Bale and Patty. Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y, Art Festival. What's the Paddy refer to? Do you know? Rice patties, I think. Okay. And the first picture, there you are in the conference room, and it looks like you've got a number of attendees, and you're doing a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, I mean, it's just like giving a talk somewhere, you know, on a, you know, in a library or a campus or something here. They had modern facilities, just like, you know, not Probably not brand new, everything brand new like a lot of places have here, but, you know, we had good enough facilities to, to put a real nice presentation together. So I asked them, you know, should I bring my LCD projector? Should I bring, like, no, no, we have all that. You know, okay. just bring a thumb drive with your presentation. And I actually brought my whole laptop, just, you know, makes it feel more comfortable if you have backups of everything with you. You want to get halfway around the world and have something not work. So, so they had to ask questions to the interpreter. And then the interpreter would ask yeah. you, is that how they did it? Yeah. Um, there was a few of them that spoke English that could ask their questions in English. But then the problem is, is the people in the audience who didn't speak English didn't know what the question was. So oh. the interpreter would always, you know, interpret everything said in English back into Khmer. And then if the questions were asked in Khmer, they would just repeat them in English for me. And, you know, they're good interpreters. These guys are, you know, have sort of an agriculture background. So... They're, they're helping um, form the question. Along with asking the question, they're asking for clarifications so that everybody can understand, you know, the, the answers to the question. And maybe they're helping to formulate a better question as well when they're, when they're asking the questions. So it was nice having interpreters that, you know, just don't interpret exactly what you say, but they kind of understand the subject matter as well, which mm. was, was nice. Good point. So the next picture has you outside, yep. and uh, I don't know. Are they raised beds? Are they containers of some, or is that actually their bales? Yeah, I think they're probably homemade bales, handmade bales. That could be at one of the NGO sites that we went to that had made, you know, some some handmade bales. I think they actually did get a baler. They had imported one baler from Korea. And they used that one baler to bale some straw for their previous art, their uh, bale festival. They had made these mazes and things out of bales. And rather than doing them by hand, they had this baling machine that they had brought in. Um, but one baling machine in the entire country of Cambodia. So, you know, if they want to do this on any kind of mass scale, everything's going to have to be handmade bales. Unless for some reason they would, somebody would buy a baler and, and donate it to the Cambodians, that would be lovely, but um, I think most of them are going to end up making handmade bales, homemade bales. Then you can make them bigger, make them kind of whatever size you want, if you by hand. You'll see some pictures as well um, on Facebook of the hand baler that they made. And here it looks like you're tipping over a bale. 
showing them maybe the grubs yep. underneath. Is that what you're doing? Yeah, they're probably showing me the grubs that were underneath. <laughs> and, 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 you know, a, a farmer can grab a hold of a piece, a chunk of organic matter like that and see that, hey, this is good stuff. You know, you can just smell it and feel it. You know plants are going to grow really well in this. So just showing them what happens with this microbial activity and once the bales start to get conditioned, break down, what beautiful compost this makes. Um, you know, and they, they value that just as much as the, the straw bale. They were putting the straw bales in these big baskets, woven baskets, because when they're all done using the straw bale as a straw bale garden, then they wanted to keep the compost to be able to use this in, in other areas oh, okay. to, to continue growing. That's what so I'm looking at because I saw the basket. So there, there's actually the straw bale is inside the basket. Yeah. Yeah. They just wanted to keep the all the compost when they were done. They didn't want to lose any of it to be able to, to reuse it. Or maybe they grow gardens two years in those baskets and then they dump them out. Okay. You know, but those, those bamboo baskets like that are available, are everywhere over there. So, hmm. And relatively cheap. Well, and then it looks like you got to do some hands-on training here because I yep. see they're working along this row of bales and mm-hmm. are they putting up a trellis with bamboo? Is that what they're doing? Yep. Yep, they're using bamboo, and then normally, you know, we would use wire to put up uh, a trellis, something like that, and they didn't use wire. They have plastic, like, these, you know, like stretch wrap that you would put around a, a pallet of boxes or something, that stretch wrap material that goes around there. Yeah. I don't know where they get it, but this stretch wrap, and they would unwind the stretch wrap, and then they would spin it, just like you're spinning thread. They would twist it, and it would make a nylon, you know, a plastic cord essentially, that they would use to tie up everything, you know, and then that's what they made their trellis out of was this this really tightly stretched um, plastic twine or cord made from uh, this shrink wrap, big spool of (laughs) stretch wrap. It was amazing. I mean, I'm I'm looking at it thinking, what are they going to do with this stretch wrap? And all of a sudden they start spinning it. And I'm like, oh, wow, that makes a really tight, piece of almost like rope string material you advise putting a trellis up over the straw bales exactly get get the vegetation up off the ground yeah and here we would use wire and there they're going to use this this shrink wrap this the spun shrink wrap wow yep yeah they don't you know they don't have spools of wire like we have here that would cost a lot of money but somehow they get these big spools of stretch wrap and i mean there's got to be 10 miles of stretch wrap on one of these big spools that they had. And they would just unwind as the length they needed and spin it until it got, you know, it actually became real tight, like, like a rope and super strong. So you could tie it around the end and put all your might on stretching it and it wouldn't break. So huh. it worked really well. There's a couple of pictures where you can actually see it. I think maybe the next picture with the guy in the red pants that's bending over. Yeah. You see the, if you look just above, you can see the wire that stretched across, or not the wire, but the stretch wrap that pulled oh. across there. And it, it okay. Looks like wire. Yeah. Looks like wire, but it's stretch wrap. Oh, wow. Is this a picture of someone actually conditioning a bale? It looks like he's yeah. got a little bottle in his hand. Is this the bottle yep. that kind of holds the fertilizer or whatever he's using? Yep. That's the, that's the water bottle in his hand. So we show him how much to put in the water bottle, and then that's how much you put on each bale. He's out there sprinkling it on each bale. So that's his measuring cup. That's his measuring cup, exactly. And if he loses it, he can always find another one because it's just a regular old water bottle. 
Okay. And the next, the next picture you'll look at is his wife watering the bales. She's got a sprinkling can. Oh. And they, they get buckets of water and then fill up the sprinkling can. And every day they're going to go out and put a sprinkling can of water on each of the bales to keep them nice and moist. But what they're standing on right here, this is high ground that's been built up above uh, flood zone. It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Seeing how they put that together. So they have mm-hmm. a, a bamboo pole that goes across the top to kind of anchor that trellis, but then the rest of yep. it is just put together with the shrink wrap. Yep. Okay, now there is a picture in the Learn to Grow a Straw Bale Garden page, and this is showing them standing around the straw bales that actually have plants growing out of them already. So they had started this before you yep. got there. Yep, they had started it. I sent a couple copies of my book to Mr. Lee, T.O. Lee, and to, I think he gave one to the NGO director. They had already been, you know, conditioning and ready to start the bale so that they had something to show when we did this get together, when we did this convention. Now, they didn't necessarily follow the exact process because they didn't really understand what, you know, when I talked about some of the fertilizers that we were using, they weren't the exact same ones necessarily that they had available. So I don't know that they did it exactly the same way. Um, until I got there and really showed them the details of it. But they, they had stuff growing. You know, I had squash and other plants growing out of the straw bales already. So. Yeah, were they pleased with that? Yeah, I think so. One of the guys you'll see in the picture, his name is Chong Doan, and he was is one of the managers of the Kotra program. He's Korean also, and he's been in Cambodia for years teaching the Cambodians. And I think he has a master's in egg business. He's very, very knowledgeable about egg production, crop production. He sort of, I think, was going to take the lead, you know, following up and doing the experimenting and that kind of stuff, sort of leading the leading the charge after I left. So, but very knowledgeable. We had some really interesting conversations about production agriculture, you know, about genetics, crop genetics, and animal genetics, and all kinds of interesting conversations, because he's a really smart guy. Now, the box that I'm looking at, this box that everyone mm-hmm. is standing around, is that the baler? Yeah, that's the baler, yeah. It, it's sort of a vertical one, so the bales come out. You can see the bale sitting in the foreground there. And they put all the straw in there, and they use that giant lever to smash it down like a big plunger, and it's super tight. They have strings embedded, and you can see the slits in the door. Yep. Little strings up through those and tie them off, and there out pops your bale. And there you go. You can get a really big, really tight bale, I and mean, a lot of pressure on it and really squeeze them tight. Do you think they're planning to build more of those after seeing oh, that yeah. one? Okay. Oh, yeah. Lumber is available, you know, because there's lots of trees over there. They grow everywhere. So there's lots of lumber, and it's relatively inexpensive compared to other things. Lumber is fairly cheap, so they can build these balers, and they have a lot of ingenuity. So if they need to do something, they can figure out a way how to do it, build it or come up with a solution for it. I show them the American version, and they say, well, we can. We don't have this, we don't have that, but we can come up with a way to do it. They just built a wooden box and a giant plunger on the top, and they wanted to do them vertical. It's easier to get the compression that way. Uh, you know, a smaller surface area, you can get better, higher compression. So they built that design. I think that you can get that design, actually, if you search online, that um, guys in the southeast United States down in Georgia use that same design of a baler, handmade baler, to bale pine straw bales. So if you look for pine straw baler, if, you, if somebody were to Google it, 
they would find plans of how to build that exact baler. I believe that that's where they got these plans. I, I Googled it and gave them a link to the actual online plans of how to build it. And they used those plans to build their baler. And then on this one picture, it looks like, are they working with bamboo there? Yeah, that's your bamboo floating raft. Oh, they're making the raft here. Yeah, they're making the beginnings of that floating raft. And then the next picture shows a guy, and he's got the floating raft. Yep. There he is. waist deep floating raft. Yep. And they got a little base layer they put on there, and and they're going to pile up the straw. Now, what's the little blue thing under that hut that he's pushing? It's a barrel, blue barrel, just for extra flotation. Now, is what? Notice how high that is. That's about chest high. Yeah. And the water up to his waist. So there's bamboo on the top, and then there's a couple of those big blue barrels underneath to give it more buoyancy. So when he gets the straw bales up on top of there, the mound of straw, and then gets it wet, it, it will still float easily. So. And they put a little roof over the top so that there's shade. Is that why? Yeah, I don't know on that one why they did that. Maybe they wanted to make one just to see, you know, with some shade on the top. The other ones, I noticed they don't have that, but one they did. What he's in between there, are those actual yep. areas that they're going to be growing then? Yeah. Yep. They're beginning the, you know, to pile up the straw. I don't think they had it all on there yet, but they're you know getting the rafts ready. They do want to put a little bit on there, I think, and just see if it floated, how, you know, how buoyant it was, if they need more or less bamboo. Well, I'll put some of these pictures on the show notes page because uh, that way people can see what we're talking about here, but they're fascinating. Sure. So... Um, and then it looks like here, the, one of the last pictures is just this pretty substantial straw bale garden that they have that's on top of one of the mounds, right? Yeah, it could be. Uh, you know, they had a couple of good-sized gardens like this. You can see the director with the folder under his arm. Yep. That's the, that was the guy who's the head of the NGO. His name is Nav Narn. Nav, N-H-O-V, N-H-A-R-N, Nav Narn. Uh, was, who was a really nice guy, spoke really great English, and just a smart guy, agriculture kind of guy, and, and runs this whole NGO. So the straw bale gardening is just part of his what he's working on. Well, I'm sure that he was delighted that you came, that you accepted the invitation to come and help them to learn how to straw bale garden. It seems like a really wonderful solution to help them become more self-reliant and have greater food security. You know, there was this message that they had posted on their Facebook page that I thought kind of told the story, but it was directed at the people who had attended that day. And this is what they wrote. They said, we hope the workshop will broaden the knowledge and understanding about how straw bale gardening works and how to apply this model to Cambodian settings to improve people's livelihood and the food security of our country. And I really thought you could take that statement and frame it and hang it in your office for those days when you're like, eh, it's just straw bale gardening. What's the big deal? Because it's moved beyond just a method to garden, and it's become something that has pretty big significance in places with challenges like the ones Cambodia faces. So you've had some time to reflect on your days in Cambodia working with the farmers And I'm so curious, what did going to Cambodia mean to you in terms of personal growth as the pioneer of straw bale gardening? Well, I certainly had 
very different expectations than what actually happened. I felt like when I went there, am I going to be able to communicate with these people? Am I, you know, are they going to learn anything? And they are they going to remember anything? And are they going to, you know, apply any any of these things I I tell them? But man, did they exceed expectations. When I got over there, I, you know, they had, you know, already got, had some gardens planted and they were excited about doing it. And they, you know, had brought all these people in from all over the country and it was a big deal to them. And, you know, it, it, it made the trip so much more by the time I got over there and I saw how much they had invested in time and effort in making this happen. It, uh, it, it made me feel really good that they were, really going to make this thing work and, and put forth an effort and, and they have, you know, and they have, we have seen a lot of results and good success because of it. So yeah, it was much more than I thought it was going to be in terms of a trip, just the, the cultural experience and seeing how people on the other side of the planet live and, and seeing how fortunate we are. I mean, you know, you get back home and you look around and you see everything you have at your fingertips, fresh running water. All I got to do is turn it on, you know, ice coming out of my refrigerator. All I got to do is push the glass in the door. You know, how unbelievably privileged we are in this country and how many millions and millions of people are right now sitting in their hut on top of these stilts with water everywhere, just in a completely different part of the world, not suffering. They're happy people. I mean, they're very happy but they certainly don't have what we have. They just live pretty simply. And it was amazing for me, I guess, to see how generous they are to share that little bit that they do have with, with other people. And it was truly a life-changing experience. I mean, people say that nonchalantly. You know, I went to Mexico and it changed my life. I spent the week in the, on the beach. You know, this, is, this was totally different. I really do feel like I learned so much. Um, you know, I took a trip to Europe last year as well, and all the sites and went to Vienna and went to, you know, all the beautiful places in Europe, but they're just like us. I mean, most Europeans are, they have a lot of stuff. Their lives are much more complicated like ours are, you know, they have the same kind of aspirations as we have and, you know, concerns about things as we have, but you get over into that part of the world and it's just a whole different world. It's like, you're not even on the same planet. Mm. Um, which, which I thought was just fascinating. And I, and I love the fact that they, that strawberry learning could mean something to them and have an impact. I hope in the long term it really helps change their paradigm of agriculture that they currently operate under. You know, I, I think it certainly can help solve some major issues in their country. And that had to be extremely gratifying. Yeah, it was. I, I have to tell you, it was very worth volunteering my time to do it. You know, you, you wonder at that time of year, that's when I can do lots of speaking engagements and you know, I can be busy and financially that benefits me, but this financially did not benefit me. But in many ways, I would, I would have paid them to go and do it. If I had known what this experience was going to be, I would have paid them to be able to go and and be part of it. So, Well, I love it. And I think it's a perfect place to end our interview. You know, Thomas Friedman has a new book out, and it's called How to Survive in the Age of Acceleration. And according to Friedman, the answer to coping with change is to anchor yourself in the world, that everything that matters is the stuff you can't download. It's the stuff you have to upload the old-fashioned way, one human being to another. 
And I think that's what you accomplished in Cambodia. Oh, yeah. Well, I want to make sure before we close the show that you have an opportunity to tell people who are considering starting a straw bale garden this year, or even people who have done it in the past and are going to continue straw bale gardening this year, that you have created an organic conditioning product for straw bales that you've specifically designed to help people condition their bales, that two-week process that helps them get the bale ready for planting, for growing. Can you tell us more about that and how they might get a hold of it? Yeah, they can stay in touch on our website. And I'll see, it's just, the product is just about ready to go. It's called Bale Buster. And it says it's all organic. It's it's used for the the main content of it is is feather meal, which is about twelve and a half percent nitrogen, and it also contains some trichoderma and bacillus, which are bacteria and fungi. Um, and it each kit we sell uh, will treat will treat five bales. Uh, so if you have a ten bale garden, you need two of these kits. And if you price things out, you'll see that our kits are much less expensive then going to retail uh, and buying it, buying the same amount of conditioning agent because we've just made this especially for a straw decomposition. So the trichoderma and bacillus uh, bacteria and fungi are completely harmless to us, um, but they just do a great job of accelerating that decomposition. So it's super simple. You take the two little foil packs and you dump them in a five-gallon pail of water and you wait until tomorrow and you pour those, that five-gallon pail of water on your five bales individually. So you get about a gallon of water on each one. And then you use the conditioning agent, which is the feather meal. There's a little scooper in the box and you use that um, over the period of 10 days for the conditioning period. And you keep the bales nice and moist, about a gallon of water every day. And, and 15 days later, you'll be ready to plant your garden. You pretty much plant any vegetables you want right into that garden. Okay, sounds good. What upcoming events do you have, Joel? Yeah, we we have a whole series of webinars which will be starting here shortly. Usually we start those in February. Um, so keep keep an eye on the website. Uh, as soon as one is, is you're able to register, it'll show up. We only put them up one at a time because we like to fill up the next webinar before we list the next one. But there will be webinars, just like I've done every spring. I do the, the free webinars online. Um, you can always buy copies of my book on the website if people want to really brush up on the subject and learn all the details. Uh, Straw Bill Gardens. And remember, folks, if you if you can't afford a book, I know there's lots of people out there who are interested, but maybe they don't want to invest in a book. You can always go to the library and you can check the book out there. I encourage people, you know, if you don't want to make the investment, you can always go to the library and check it out. And I think I'll convince you after you read the book that you'll need a reference copy. So hopefully you'll come back and buy a copy of the book. Um, you know, I would appreciate if you did. And if you do so, come to my website and buy it, and I'll sign it for you and personalize it. So, Perfect. Um, so they can always get a copy of that. And, you know, there's lots of other stuff happening, events, um, things, and you'll see a listing of that under speaking engagements on my website. We keep it as, as much as we can up to date. And another great way to keep in touch is our app. We have a mobile app called Strawbell Gardens. You can go in your iTunes store or your uh, you know, with a Google phone, you go to that store and download our app. And that's got all kinds of interesting things and links to the calendar and speaking engagements and uh, some little inspirational video of people's gardens and things like that on it. So it might be something people would be interested in. Mm-hmm. And it's free. So That's great. So they go to the Apple or iTunes store. Is it Android as well? Yep. 
on their yep. phone, just go to the app store. Yep. And when you go to search for an app, just type in Strawbell Gardening. And you'll, and Strawbell Gardens is the name of the app. And you'll see there's our little logo and just tap on it and it'll download and you'll have our app. And it'll pop right up. Okay. And then yep. the name of your website again, Joel? Strawbellegardens.com. Strawbellegardens.com. All right. Yep. And you're in the Facebook group for Still Growing, so people can also get you that way too if they want. Sure. Yeah. They can always click on me and link over. I think I don't I think it's probably my personal page, my personal Facebook page that I'm registered under Still Growing. But they can always get to me. They can get to my personal page and then from there they can link to my Learn to Grow a Strawbell Garden on Facebook, which is our our page, our Facebook page for Strawbell Gardening. You'll you'll find find all kinds of uh, stuff on my personal page, but a lot of it's probably just completely boring to most people. If they want the strawbell gardening stuff, they can go to the Learn to Grow a Strawbell Garden. That's the best place to find strawbell information. Yep. And there's a lot of great groups, strawbell gardening groups. There's amazing how many there are now. I mean, there's, you know, there's one in the Netherlands, and there's a German one, and there's a French one, and a Spanish one, all these groups that all over the world that are strawbell gardening fans. Uh, that have started their own little Facebook groups to talk about strawberry gardening. So that's that's fun to see as well. Yep, I was noticing that today. That's uh, it's taking off. It's all over the world now. So that's, that's fantastic. Sure. Well, Joel, I can't thank you enough for sharing your wonderful adventure in Cambodia with us. It was just tremendous to hear about that whole experience and the good work you did well, over thank there. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. I, you do a wonderful job with your podcasting. I tell people all the time, if you want to listen to the best podcast interviews and gardening-related subjects, you got to go to this this brand-new podcast. I always tell people, Jennifer Ebling, and it's still growing podcast. Just look it up online. <laughs> well, thank you, Joel. That's very kind. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on the show. I know that people will really be inspired by the story of your trip to Cambodia and what you got accomplished there. Thanks again. I do really appreciate it. Well, you're more than welcome. And I have to say it was a true pleasure to get to hear all about it directly from you. So thank you for that. Have a great day, Joel. Thanks for being on the show. Have a great day. All right, you too. Well, that's it for the show today. I want to thank my friend, Joel Karsten of Straw Bale Gardens for being my guest, for sharing his wonderfully inspiring trip to Cambodia and his good work there last spring. Wasn't that absolutely incredible. I want to thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping me with this episode. David Myers, my editor, Ein Kadina, my copywriter, and David Gregerson, my project manager. Just a reminder that I'll have all of the generous information that Joel shared on the show today in the show notes for this episode at my blog, sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. And it's the home for the Still Growing Podcast. So there'll be a page there that's dedicated to the show. All the show notes are there. They'll pop right up. And the great resources that were mentioned in the news roundup at the beginning of the episode, in addition to all of the questions that Joel answered, are listed there with timestamps and lots of resources available to you. And don't forget that I'd like to invite you to join the Still Growing Podcast group. That's our listener community on Facebook. So you can find it by going to the website. Just look at the very top in the menu it'll say Facebook page. That's a quick and easy way to navigate your way there. Otherwise, go to Facebook and search Still Growing Podcast Group. That's the name of our community. And then request to join. It's a closed group. You just have to request to join. 
and then I'll admit you to the group. And that's the only place I'm going to go to pick six winners for a copy of Joel's book, Straw Bale Gardens. So if you're interested in getting a copy of that book, please get in the group. I'd love to meet you there, hear about your garden stories, your challenges, and it's a great place for you to interact with other guests of the show. Joel is in there. Pam Pennick is in there from last week's episode. Peggy Ann Montgomery of American Beauty Native Plants. Anna Thomas is in there of Vegan Vegetarian Omnivore and Deborah Madison of Vegetable Literacy, just to name a few. And I know they're happy to interact with you about any question you may have about their area of expertise. So go ahead, check it out the next time you're online. It's a great way to stay connected in between episodes. Once again, thank you for listening. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.